0: This is LBC from Global, leading Britain's conversation with Ian Payne.
1: Very good morning. It's a Friday. It's just after 4 a.m. Thank you for being with me and keeping me company all this week. Steve will be back over the weekend. Coming up between now and Nick Ferrari at 7 o'clock, we'll be talking about uh, the Defence Secretary, Gavin Williamson, with his claim that Britons agree with him that British ISIS recruits should be, quote, eliminated. We'll also be talking about another report damning British universities, or rather English universities. I have to ask the question, are they working? And in about half an hour's time, we'll cross to California, where more and more of um, Hollywood superstars... Are getting involved in those raging fires. We'll get the very latest from there. They're still burning, obviously. But let's talk about Jerusalem. We spoke about it for an hour yesterday. It was a really interesting discussion on both sides of the fence. I'm going to suggest something in this first hour. It's not necessarily something I totally believe in, but maybe, maybe President Trump has got the right idea here wouldn't imagine uh, many people would say that many things about Donald Trump being right in this particular instance. All sorts of countries that normally side with the United States have already said his decision to uh, recognise Jerusalem as the capital of uh, Israel now. Um, most of the allies, uh, virtually all of them have said, Saudi Arabia, France, Britain have also said, you know, it's poor, it, poor judgment at best and at worst it's incendiary and will actually halt the peace process. What's, so this is the latest thing that's um, supposed to happen. Uh, they're two hours ahead so I'm not sure exactly what's happening over there yet, whether it's too early for protesters to be out on the streets, probably not the uh the uh, pa- Palestinian Islamist group uh, which the uh, Israelis refer to as a terrorist group Hamas, has called for today to be what they call a day of rage, uh, which will mean more youths with um, scarves around their mouths throwing rocks and burning tires as the security forces the Israeli security forces um fire tear gas at them and and rubber bullets as well 31 palestinians were injured yesterday following donald trump's announcement it's interesting though that even though donald trump said that um the united states will formally recognize uh, jerusalem as the capital he didn't go so he actually kind of reined back in his desire to move the embassy from tel aviv to jerusalem um the last 22 years, every American president has uh, a pledge that they would say exactly what President Trump said this week, but they haven't actually done it. And the uh, I was watching a very... I spent actually because yesterday was such an interesting day talking about this and I was learning so much about the views, the history, uh, the geography, the politics, the religious aspect to this, which of course there is. I spent most of yesterday researching this, going through documentaries, l- l- reading texts, reading... Um, reading reports, commentaries on the situation and how it might change now because of this. And a particularly interesting interview I saw, it was on broadcast on CNN with the um, US ambassador to the UN. And she was basically saying, Look, for 22 years, every single American president has said, Yes, we're going to recognize Jerusalem as the capital. But they haven't actually put it into policy, they haven't signed a document to that effect. Well, this week, of course, President Trump did that. And she said, look, for 22 years, we said we would, but we didn't. And it didn't work. Peace has not been achieved in this particular area of the world. She said, why not give it a go? So I'm asking that question. Why not give this a go? It would be... I think, counterproductive for the uh, Palestinian president, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, not even to meet the American vice president, Mike Pence. At least listen to what he's got to say. And she was also making the point, the U.S. um, ambassador to the U.N., she was saying that that, that the the United States has not said where, if they did move their embassy, which, they, as I say, they've reined back a little bit, because that really would be significant. Normally the embassy is in the old capital of, of Tel Aviv. So she said, "We're not going to. We're not saying that it's going to be in any part of Jerusalem." And again, researching it yesterday, talking to people who live there, we had listeners actually ringing us from Jerusalem yesterday. Um, and she was saying, "You know that we're not picking a particular part of Jerusalem to, to put." the embassy if we did that we're not taking sides so much we are recognizing jerusalem as the capital of israel and there was all sorts of stuff that i was reading about and listening to in interviews and commentaries yesterday um the fact that for example in the in the sort of, sort of jewish version of the the bible the old testament and the various other the torah there are so many references to jerusalem as the capital of Israel, or of uh, the, the Holy Land, or their homeland, as they would put it. But they were saying, but there was an argument saying that in the um, Quran, there's no mention of it, and it's only recently that Palestine has seen Jerusalem as their capital as well. And what was so fascinating about the documentaries and what was so fascinating about the research was the fact that these religions um, steeped in history were in some way so similar Um, The fact that within Jerusalem itself, there are the four groups, they are literally just divided into the quarters, the Muslim sector, the Christian sector. Um, You've got the Armenian sector um, as well, and you've got the Jewish sector. And it was just so interesting to see it. And there was a documentary about three girls who were almost sort of identical ages. They looked very, very similar. And they were talking about their quarter. There was a Muslim girl, there was a Christian girl, there was a Jewish girl. And they were talking about their quarter within Jerusalem. And they were basically telling the same story that their ancestors or their, their relatives had come from different parts of the world. You know, it was a real kind of cocktail of nationalities there that were bound together by this holy place. Each had their holiest <clears throat> church or synagogue or mosque on a particularly um, significant site for the Christians. Obviously, it's, this, it's, it's where Jesus was um, was tried, was persecuted, was crucified, and in their belief, rose again. In the Muslim um, Quran, it was where obviously Muhammad was there and was taken up for his journey to see his God. Um, and the fact that these Abrahamic religions were also similar—that's what struck me so much about this. And the, and the fact that they celebrated in different ways, but in a lot of ways, very very similar. And this seems to me the great sadness and the tragedy of. Um, this particular part of the world, it's it has been sort of like the axis of so many civilizations, so much um, so much strife, seen as the center of the world in many respects, seen as the place where, for certainly for those three religions, it is the place where people are closest to God, and there is a rock there that everybody sees as the place where God actually appears. So we could look at it from that point of view, but I just feel it would be a very unfortunate, um, missed opportunity to at least listen to the narrative and to the conversation that the Americans have started. And I'd like to know whether or not you think that having a day of rage, having um, or making suggestions that the American Vice President, Mike Pence, won't even be uh, welcomed to uh, Palestine, I just feel it's, it's an opportunity for people to at least share some views and actually look at it from a different angle. Who's to say that, that you know, Palestine might not have their capital in Jerusalem as well? We spoke to um, a Jewish uh, resident of Jerusalem yesterday, and he was saying, you know, why can't the, why can't the Palestinians live... As have their capital in Ramallah, and there was some, and then the Palestinian who was on at the same time was saying, "What? Well, why would we want to, to have that as our capital? Our capital's Jerusalem." And then the Jewish man said, "Well, you, you've only just claimed that in the last however many years. He's, you know, ours goes back millennia. So you can go on and on and on. I'm not sure that the historical aspect to it is particularly helpful. So what I'd really like to do is start a conversation this morning with you to see is there any f- chance of Donald Trump's policy? If not working that at least opening up new avenues of discussion. Who's to say that they won't recognise the Palestinian capital as Jerusalem as well? It would probably mean that the, 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 the capital of Israel will be on the west side of Jerusalem and the capital of uh, Palestine would be on the east side. But again, that's obviously for conjecture. The actual, the, the kind of really... Interesting thing about it, it's very small Jerusalem, particularly the old city. Very, very small, the walled city. So anyway, I'm probably telling you stuff you know all about. But anyway, yesterday was a real voyage of discovery for me. So let's try and talk about this in the next fifty minutes or so. So give me a call now, and if you ring now, you'll get through. As I always say, that the earlier you ring, the much more likely you are to get through. Oh three four five six zero. Six zero nine seven three. Obviously, I'd love to hear from from people of the Jewish faith. I'd love to hear from from Arabs. I'd like to hear from Palestinians. I learnt yesterday there are Palestinian Christians. I didn't know that. O three four five six zero six zero nine seven three. It's it's such a, a mixture of religions and belief and history that there doesn't. There's no sort of purity of kind of. It's almost ethnicity, because everyone comes from everywhere else. And this idea that you know Judaism is not just a, a religion and a, and, and, a, and a philosophy and a belief; it's actually a nation as well. Zionism. Oh three four five six oh six oh nine seven three is the number to ring. Come on, and let's have a conversation about whether or not am I am I abs- am I being absolutely crazy here to say that maybe Donald Trump has, if not certainly not, solved the problem, but has actually put another. Perspective, a way of looking at this relationship between these two nations, countries, beliefs. That it's it's. Don't miss this opportunity to at least explore the chance that it might have some future to it. Oh three four five six zero six zero nine seven three. Personally, I think I can understand Palestinian uh, rage, but calling for a day of rage. I don't think helps the situation at all what's that going to achieve it's been been doing that for, for years and years and years and again if you want to talk about the british involvement yes we did it again we were involved in this area dividing it up after the first world war with balfour uh, with the French getting the, the top half and the British getting the bottom half. Although I have to say, in this respect, looking at the sort of history of it, before the the, the, the the First World War, while that whole area was part of the Ottoman Empire, all the various religions lived together. The Jewish population was much lower, but they all got together. They, they all lived together fairly successfully. 03456060973. Oh, six, oh, six, oh, three. There's no reason why these people can't live together. They'd, as I say, in the, in the old city, there, there's no trouble. People get on. They don't mix. You know, the, the quarters do tend to stay apart. But there seems to be some kind of agreement, tacit or otherwise, that that people get on with their daily lives. The ceremonies continue. I didn't realize that twice a week there's massive ceremonies for bar mitzvahs. Uh, and vets for for the girls as well every single week. I mean, it's just it's just a kind of it's a city of festivals, if I can put it that way. Amazing vibrancy. Oh three four five six oh six oh nine seven three is the number to ring. If you want to text, it's eight four eight five zero. If you want to tweet, it's at LBC. So I'm putting it out there. I'm just suggesting that maybe Donald Trump's suggestion that they will now, not suggestion, but his policy, that they will recognise Jerusalem as the capital of Israel could be the starting point for fundamental and different talks about whether these communities can live together harmoniously. Matthew's got in touch already, says it'll never work. Trump doesn't want it to work. He wants a war to distract from Mueller's investigation into the Russian links. That's the only motivation for, n- for that. And Eric says, if not now, then what? There will never be a time when the Middle East isn't experiencing, quote, tensions. The kind of people who will riot over this are those who are burning flags and chanting death to America on a daily basis, no matter what. And Dean says he's given up some leverage for future negotiations on a two-state deal. Now Israel have something they want without them making any concessions to the Palestinians. As far as I can see, the US hasn't gained from this makes me wonder if Trump's motivation was personal gain. We can talk about Trump's motivi- mo- motivation. Was it for the region or was it for the interests of the United States? I think it's probably for both. 0345 Give me a call now. You will get through. Can't guarantee that later in the programme. Text 84850 or tweet at LBC. At least, I think, give this policy a chance. Don't you? It's quarter past four.
0: Ian Payne on LBC. Call 0345
1: After the historic announcement that uh, America would recognise Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, I'm asking the question: Isn't this a chance to at least try and explore the possibility this could lead to a two-state uh, answer to that question? And also. Um, wouldn't it be a missed opportunity if the Palestinians literally just rejected it and will not welcome the US Vice President who is due for talks next month uh, Marks in Tamworth, he says, Ian, the Israeli-Palestine peace process has stalled since Benjamin Netanyahu was re-elected as Prime Minister in 2009 I don't think that yesterday's announcement was as significant as people are saying there needs to be another Yitzhak Rabin for peace talks to start again, but Al says quite simply, he did the right thing what does Francis say in South Ken? Hi Francis morning.
2: Yes Good morning. Morning. Yes, Ian, the problem is Netanyahu. Time and time again, I have a lot of friends from Israel who voted against him in the last election. What you have to understand is, I don't think the problem, yes, I do understand we need to explore a different avenue to try and bring the two parties together. But the main problem is Netanyahu and his extreme views. Netanyahu cannot be trusted because if you remember very well, some years ago, Sarkozy was even heard calling him a liar. Netanyahu says one thing and does the other. Just a couple of years ago, he said, Yes, I believe in a two state solution. You know, yeah. And then he went back on his word and said, No, I don't think that's would work. Look, the time is coming. The only way we can move forward in this tragedy is we need a new prime minister in Israel. Someone who is not hell-bent on his extreme. I mean, look, Netanyahu is a very, very, what I would call, is an extremist with the way he feels about Israel.
1: Hardliner. You know, How about a- hardliner rather than extremist?
2: Ah, well, I call it, ex- I mean, ex- I mean, extremist. I mean, you can, you know, Call him, a, you know, a hardliner. But the fact of the matter is, time and time again, he has refused to stop building settlements, authorising new settlements, mm. taking more
1: Palestinian land. Why don't you think and the international community does more about those settlements? Because they are illegal in international law, aren't they, in the, in the West Bank?
2: You know something, Ian? What saddens me is, The Western countries, America and Britain, are very quick to condemn other leaders around the world who have done just a smidgen of what Nishinehu does. For some funny reason, the world turns a blind eye when Israel commits its criminal acts. I'm disgusted by it. I mean, I mean, it's more or
1: less an apartheid state. I think, one, one, certainly, as I, as I discovered yesterday, one of the problems with this particular region, and possibly more so, and why it's so intractable, the the, the problem, is yeah. that religion and faith and belief in your way of life plays such an important part to that area, you know, and far more mm. one, I was listening to one rabbi and he was saying, you know, the difference between living here and living in the West, i.e. living here or living in America is that, you know, ours is a struggle. We are always struggling for our identity. We are always trying to prove that, you know, and my answer to that would be, well, don't struggle so much. You know, I would try and make a more sort of secular society, but it, it doesn't appear that that is, would ever be possible in a region like this, and whilst you have the religious conviction on both sides, in fact on all four sides of Jerusalem, you're never going to get that kind of um, um, you're never going to get that that, uh, that that agreement between between right. them all, so you have to find a very different solution, and I'm wondering whether that's possible.
2: Um, I think the problem we have also is you also have to look at the regional powers, namely Saudi Arabia yeah. and other Muslim uh, countries. That well, Saudi <laughs> are very against, that, obviously
1: that. Saudi are very against it, and they're one of the strongest allies of the United States, but I don't think it'll make any difference, do you?
2: Um, I also think, you know, they also have a very apparently, there is sort of, they are building their relationship with the Israelis, you know, you know, on the low down. The way I see it is this. This is not going to do any favors for the present situation all it's going to do is exacerbate the situation Mm. and we are going to see more and more violence that's the sad part of all of this like i've said time and time again and also donald trump is not really in a very good political position to see this through Mm. because as we all know his The presidency is on really shaky ground at the moment, okay? Nobody knows
3: what's going
1: on. I'm sure there's a part of it, and and when you you sort of recognize the psyche of, of Donald Trump, he does almost the opposite of what people expect. I think he just likes making his mark, and this is, I'm different from the other presidents. I do what I say, unlike them, even if it has political ramifications, and in this case, violent ones.
2: Um, I don't think, I think that it's basically been, I mean, I personally think the new cons in the Republican Party have put so much pressure on Donald Trump to follow this through. I don't think this was all Donald Trump's doing. I truly do not think so. Because you have to remember that Donald Trump was... I mean, his whole campaign was based on a non-interventionalist, okay, America. And all of a sudden, a couple of months into his, you know, presidency, he's become this, what I would call a big interventionalist. So really, the way I see it is, I don't think he is in control of what's really going on or what's coming out of the
1: report well i think we should give we should give this a go and that's my contention this morning thank you very much francis who doesn't think the problem is negotiating a deal with the israelis the problem is netanyahu could it work could could donald trump's policy actually work so what's been going on uh, Today and overnight, if you're you're just waking up or haven't gone to bed yet, uh, the U.S. has warned the Palestinians that they don't want them to cancel their talks that are scheduled to take place between the American vice president, Mike Pence, and the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas. As I say, they're planned for, for, for later this month, sorry, before Christmas. Senior Palestinian official says Mr. Pence would not be Welcome in the country. 31 Palestinians were wounded in clashes in the Gaza Strip yesterday and across the occupied West Bank. The clash is triggered by Mr Trump's policy shift. More protests are expected in Palestinian territories today. Hamas, which is the Islamist group uh, in Gaza, was ba- is basically saying... We want a day of rage today. We want to have a new Intifada. I mean that sort of talk just doesn't help the situation, or maybe you think it does. Does anyone agree with Hamas coming out with statements like that? Mm-hmm. Give me a call and let me know oh three four five six zero six zero nine seven three But my main question is, could Donald Trump's change of policy work, or is it another future failed attempt? Um, Israel's deployed hundreds of extra troops in the West Bank. I mean, we're almost sort of bored of saying that now. It just seems to me it's the same story over and over again. And at least give this a try. 03456060973. If you'd like to tell me I'm wrong, right, or you've got another version on this. Uh, what is the way forward now? Shouldn't we give Donald Trump's policy at least a hearing? Many of uh, Washington's closest allies, as I've mentioned, have said they disagree with the US policy shift. The UN Security Council, the Arab League, they're both meeting in the coming days. They're going to decide their response. Um, Yesterday, the White House said the Vice President, Mr Pence, planned to hold the meeting. Uh, He still intends to meet Mr. Abbas, a White House official said, and Palestinian leaders, and thinks any decision to pull out of the meeting would be counterproductive. Uh, During his visit, which is scheduled for the latter part of this month, Mr. Pence is also going to visit Israel and Egypt. Now, Donald Trump refrained from using Israel's description of Jerusalem as its, quote, eternal and undivided capital. The Palestinians want East Jerusalem to be the capital of any future Palestinian state. Couldn't that work? Couldn't you have two capitals in Jerusalem? I don't. If you're going to have a two-state solution, you've got to have a two-capital solution, haven't you? I don't know why that wouldn't work. Tell me why I'm wrong, will you? 03456060973, the capital of Jer- Jerusalem, the capital of Palestine, and the capital of, um, of Israel. Would you be against that? It seems the logical way forward, doesn't it? Uh, and creating an assembly um, to run the area, what, like Northern Ireland, or would that just be impossible? Would the, the Jewish lobby say that that's just impossible? We wouldn't power share in any way, and the Palestinians would say the same. And I suppose if you're going to be on that kind of um, truck, you're never going to agree to anything, are you? So um, Benjamin Netanyahu is the Israeli prime minister who we've heard a lot about said Israel was profoundly grateful to Mr. Trump, who had, quote, bound himself forever with the history of the capital. He also said Israel was in touch with other countries to follow suit. didn't name any of these countries, although the Philippines and the Czech Republic have been mentioned in Israeli media. And as I say, in that interview that I was listening to yesterday or watching uh, from CNN... The US ambassador to the United Nations was saying, well, well, the Russians recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel back in May. I haven't been able to confirm that or not. If you know that, let me know. Oh, 0345. You can text 84850 or tweet at LBC. The White House said it was not aware of any other countries planning to follow America's lead. Um, So, the leader of Hamas, which obviously dominates the Gaza Strip, that's a sort of bottom left of the region, if you're trying to think of it in terms of a map, has called for a day of rage on Friday, said it should be the first day of the Intifada against the Occupier. Well, that kind of rhetoric is just going to take us straight back to um, the mortuary, I'm afraid. Hamas members would be, quote, fully ready to confront this strategic danger, Uh, Ismail Hanaya said in a speech in Gaza. The Fatah Party, meanwhile, seeking to protest through diplomatic means, much better, by filing a complaint to the UN Security Council and pushing for a strong stance by the Arab League. So am I, you know, out of my mind by trying to suggest that at least this is a different way of looking at the situation? And maybe... It's it's the time to give this kind of um, suggestion a chance. Why not have a capital of both nations in the same place? It seems a no-brainer to me. But then, of course, I'm coming at this millennia-old problem from. Actually, no, it's not. It's about a uh, hundred years old. In fact, it is a hundred years old from 1917 when the Balfour. Uh, Treaty was was signed. Anyway, I'm not going to give you a history lesson because you know it all. Oh three four five six oh six oh nine seven three. Could Donald Trump's plans for Jerusalem and Israel and Palestine? Actually work. After the news, we're going to be crossing to the US, finding out more about these wildfires sweeping across Southern California. It's evening in Southern California at the moment. We'll be speaking to a correspondent for NBC in Los Angeles to see just how badly that city is currently being affected by the flames. I think Lionel Richie cancelled a concert to help his sister-in-law, I think get out of her house, evacuate her house, um, is it uh, who else, Rupert Murdoch's winery is badly affected and the uh, Paul Getty Museum as well lots of very expensive pieces of art there so there's lots to talk about, time is half past four
0: Ian Payne on LBC call 0345 6060
1: Okay, uh, more on Jerusalem and the Day of Rage, which is planned today by the Palestinian group Hamas. But first of all, let's find out the latest with the California fires. Uh, We can uh, cross now to uh, Conan Nolan, who's working for NBC in the area. What is the latest? I presume that the the fires uh, are in no way looking like they're going out yet.
4: Right. No. Uh, in fact, um, a few have, have started uh, within the past uh, 12 or 14 hours. So we have a total of about six throughout the Southern California That's Los Angeles at San Diego. They just released some some information as to how many, at least 500 homes and structures, not all of them homes, but 500 buildings uh, have been consumed. And they still have close to 200,000 people who have been evacuated. So. Uh, it's very much um, a fluid situation. Again, when it comes to the wildfires that we see, it's it's something that, that we've seen before in California. It uh, depends on the velocity of the wind, and that is what the problem is then. We've had some high desert winds, 70-mile-per-hour gusts on, uh, earlier this week, that have driven it to the point that you can't fight a fire when you have that kind of velocity pushing the flames, and there lies uh, the problem.
1: What is the the worst-case scenario? Because it's now beginning to encroach on parts of Los Angeles, very well-known parts of Los Angeles, like Bel Air.
4: It it is. uh, We've lost a few homes in Bel Air, and you've had some uh, celebrities uh, evacuated. Uh, We we know that Rupert Murdoch, for example, lost a vineyard, I believe, up in Ventura. Uh, Right now, something like 23,000 homes Uh, are in danger now that that means they're in the path of the fire in in the in the in the direction where the winds are pushing it um does that mean they're going to go up no but uh if if conditions don't get a little better uh then yes there's a very strong possibility that we're going to go from 500 to much larger and we have in the past they've You know, so far, acres, 140,000 acres, that's a very large area, has already burned. And so, again, it's up to Mother Nature. They've got literally thousands of firefighters from throughout the United States on this. And part of the problem is that not only are you fighting these fires, but you're always worried about others breaking out because that just uh, becomes a resource problem. They fight these fires on the ground and in the air, and there's just so much that they can throw at it.
1: Tell us about the prospects for Los Angeles. I mean, are we talking about, you know, crisis time or not?
4: And I wouldn't say crisis time. The uh, Much of the area that is as feeling the brunt of this are in some of the what are called the canyons and passes. Los Angeles is a mountainous area. Uh, and you have the San Gabriel Mountains, the San Bernardino Mountains, the Hollywood Hills. And so in those passes where uh, they're, they're sort of like wind tunnels, when the wind comes off the desert to the north, they're the ones that are getting uh, the brunt of this. It. So it, it's it's not like uh, there's going to be massive uh, exodus of the city of Los Angeles. But there are parts where they – and one of the reasons why the famous people live there is because it's beautiful. It's on hillsides, and it's amongst – the vegetation the chaparral the california oak and those things if you don't have enough clearance can go up when it's very dry and that's what's happened it's been we haven't had rain in quite a while we did have a strong winter last year which added to the promotion of brush uh, underbrush which adds more fuel to the fire so if you have wind you have fuel uh, you have oxygen Uh, and you have a source, then all of a sudden you've got a problem. So it's a problem for L.A., but uh, mostly for certain particular areas of it, and also to the north of L.A. in Ventura County. That's where they've lost lives, and that's where they've lost most of the property.
1: Daniel, thank you very much. Uh, Sorry, Conan, thank you very much indeed. Conan Nolan, who's the correspondent for NBC in Los Angeles with the very latest, and Nick Ferrari will be visiting uh, California again. Um, to uh, get an update when he takes over from me here on LBC at uh, 7 o'clock. Right, let's talk about Donald Trump's plan. Is it really as crazy as some people are suggesting vis-a-vis Jerusalem? And what about having two capitals, Uh, Jerusalem being the capital of Israel and also being the capital of Palestine? uh, Is that even a goer? Daniel has got in touch with us. He's in Nottingham. Hi, Daniel. Hi, good morning. Morning. what What do you think?
3: I think it could work, but I also reckon we could try a Vatican City model. What do you mean? Well, you've got... You're saying yesterday all the holy parts of Jerusalem are all in the centre. Yeah, little quadrants in the centre. So why not have the capital in Jerusalem, but then the centre of it is um, like a Vatican City. The three major religions, Israel, Christianity and Jewish, all run that part of the city.
1: Yeah, I mean, it kind of works already, doesn't it, with all those various... And the Armenian quarter as well. It, it, it works already, yeah. and, as I, and as, I, as I believe... I haven't visited uh, Jerusalem, but as I believe... You know, the, this, the, the communities don't mix that much, but, you know, there's no violence. Everyone gets on with their day-to-day life. I don't see why that couldn't continue.
3: Why, why doesn't the community mix that much? It used to. That's the question we've got to ask. Why, why now when 40 years
1: ago they were mixing. Yeah, and also they were, they were mixing quite happily, as I said, when the Ottoman Empire was, in, uh, was yeah. in its strength and before the First World War. So, you know, some things happen, and as usual, it's our intervention that's, um, while good intentioned, perhaps has, has created more of a problem again, hasn't it?
3: Yeah. Well, again, I do think it can work.
1: Well, I hope so. I hope so. I'm going to speak to somebody now who doesn't think it will. Daniel, thank you very much indeed. Silas joins us now from Bo. Uh, you're an Israeli yourself, are you? Yeah, I was an Israeli, yes. Okay. What do you think of the idea of having two capitals in Jerusalem?
5: I, 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 don't, I don't think it's right. Because we, we, we were there yeah, a couple of the years, uh, over 3,000 years, and we always, in our prayer, we always back to be back into Jerusalem as our capital mm.
1: now i under I understand the significance I understand the history, but how if we're to get are you prepared then if you don't want to share the capital, are you prepared for this intifada for this kind of um, struggle for this battle between yes. these two people to carry on
5: we can we can take it we, we, we don't mind for all this trouble we can challenge them no matter what, but that will pass away, and sooner or later. They will recognise the state of, of Israel as as uh, uh, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. it?
1: I understand that, but it, it just it seems to me that people like you are prepared to put up with war, if you want to put it that way. It um,
5: it's not war. It's, the, it's what is our right.
1: Yeah. No. No. Absolutely. I've no. I've got no qualms about you you, you claiming it, uh, Jerusalem as your capital. But if we're to make any progress, and if if peace is what people want, then the Palestinians have to have a piece of the cake, don't they?
5: Yeah, the Ramallah, they, 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 they,
1: no, they don't want Ramallah, Ramallah to be the capital, they want Jerusalem Ramallah to be the, the capital.
5: capital. Right, we, we always demand, we always yearn for this capital, yeah. At the end, we have it now. And that's it. No matter what problem we got there, Antifada, or whatever problem there is, we can take it. We don't mind.
1: But I think that that's part of, well, I don't know, maybe as you say, um, Jewish residents of Jerusalem and elsewhere in Israel would say, well, do you know what? We'd rather have it this way than the other way and have peace. Would I be right in saying that?
5: If peace, uh, we can have peace with the Arab, because right now the Palestinian Israeli. I, that is in Israel. Uh, they 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 prefer to be with the Israeli side,
6: mm-hmm.
5: and, and they were very peaceful with Israel because we 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 we, 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 we make school together, we we work together, and uh, and they're very happy. They're very they got their freedom. Mm. But you find, you find in like in Ramallah and all these places they don't have their freedom. There's no democracy down there, right? So and 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 Netanyahu begged, begged uh, from uh, this Abbas for for uh, to sit down to to make a deal, but he didn't. He he, he refused. So he, 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 you know by refusing all the time. Yeah. Well,
1: yeah, may, maybe as you say, stop. as you say, Silas. Thanks for your call. As you say, maybe there is a feeling amongst the Israeli population that we're prepared to have the situation as it is now rather than share our capital. Maybe that is seen as a solution. It wouldn't go down well with uh, the Palestinians, I know, and this is a suggestion, and I've heard it a couple of times now, normally from, well, always from um, from Israelis, is, well, they've got Ramallah, we've got Jerusalem. Well, it doesn't work like that, otherwise we wouldn't have this problem. 03456060973, uh, Mark's gone in touch. He said, yes, as I asked before, Russia has recognised Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Since April, Uh, I read it in the Jerusalem Post. The Czech Republic announced yesterday that it will also recognise Jerusalem as the capital. Theresa May, however, says the UK has no plans to follow suit and that Donald Trump's measure was, quote, unhelpful. What do you think? Could Donald Trump's policy actually work? Has he actually made a... um, proactive step to try to, if not solve the problem, and maybe there are some people, and oh, it's interesting to hear Silas's view who don't actually want the problem to be solved they don't see it as a problem, they can deal with it as he as he said, the problem is it's all right for Israel. It's not very good for Palestine. We had people on yesterday saying, you know, p- people who had been brought up. There was a guy came on. He'd, he'd been in. I think he'd been brought up in the Gaza or was it the West Bank. Anyway, the first t- twenty years of his life, and he said, you know, every time I try and go to Israel, I have to go through checkpoints and all the rest of it. And you can see it from the Israeli point of view. And they're saying, well, hold on a minute. The reason we have these checkpoints is we 've got to make sure that you 're not going to come in and put a bomb in one of our shops o three four five six zero six zero nine seven three is the number to ring if you 'd like to talk about this so Mr Trump said the United States would support a two state solution which is shorthand for a final settlement that would see the creation of an independent Palestinian state within the sort of pre one thousand nine hundred and sixty seven Ceasefire lines in the West Bank, Gaza Strip and East Jerusalem, living peacefully alongside Israel, if agreed by both sides, is what he said. The president uh, also refrained from using the description of Israel's uh, capital, Jerusalem, as its eternal and undivided capital. Um, Hamas, though, has taken a very strong line. Today they want it to be a day of rage. Uh, but there are, of course, some parties within um, Palestine who want to uh, go to the UN and do it that way rather than do it through um, conflict. But it's going to be another day of of rock-throwing and possibly worse, and more people will be injured today, and it just seems that it's a shame. But maybe it's, it's the way forward for Donald Trump to suggest something radical. You may say he's doing it for his own agenda. Well, he probably is, and most people do, but at least it's worth a try, isn't it? You're listening to LBC. This is Ian Payne. I'm in for Steve Allen this morning. He's back at the weekend. The time is just after quarter to five.
0: Ian Payne on LBC.
1: So I'm asking whether or not Donald Trump's decision to uh, officially recognise Jerusalem as the capital of of Israel might actually open up a new avenue of talks for peace. Actually, listening to uh, Silas just now, I'm wondering whether or not some people actually want peace. He was quite happy to leave things as they are. He'd rather have things as they are with all the all the uh, the struggle, the uh, the lack of peace, he'd rather have a lack of peace and keep Jerusalem as the capital without Palestine having any kind of say on it. Oh three four five six oh six oh nine seven three. We're going to be talking about Gavin Williamson, who's reiterated his point that he thinks Brits who go and join up with ISIS should be quote eliminated. He says, it's what Brits want? Is it?" I'll be asking that after five o'clock. And after six o'clock, we'll talk about universities, which I'm wondering whether the, the, the new style university is actually working. All it seems to be doing is filling the pockets of the people who run them. Unbelievable salaries. Have you seen? Bath Spa a payoff the, the vice chancellor of Bath Spa getting a payoff of eight hundred and eight thousand pounds. Oh three four five six zero six zero nine seven three. Adrian has got in touch with says why would Trump make this announcement in Jerusalem? It's doing it just to provoke people. There was no need to upset the apple cart. It's pure provocation. I say this having a Jewish background, knowing for sure that tensions will rise again and many lives will be lost locally and surely also in Western Europe. We've gone back 10 years. Trump won't care because the carnage will be the end of him and his arms shipments will go up dramatically. A shameful that a US president is happy to treat life so simply and cheaply. People yet again will die in the UK because of the United States actions. Will they? Let's go to David's in Hackney. Hi, David.
7: Um, good evening. Good evening, um,
1: good morning, whatever.
7: Yeah. <laughs> uh, basically, what I want to know is, why is it that um, do the Palestinians have to meet this condition or that condition or when the land is just as much theirs as it is the Israelis'?
1: Well, it depends who you listen to, don't you? Because you say, the, the Israelis would say, well, Palestine has only just mentioned it as their capital in the last 50, 70 years. We've been talking about it for 3,000. That's their argument. Whereas Palestine say, well, it's just as holy a place to us as it is to you. What's the problem?
8: Well, this
7: is this is uh, another point. That, I mean, they keep quoting this this biblical right yeah. that, um, that, that keeps on being quoted, but if you really know your history then um, religious history then um, they would also uh, it would also uh, be known that God Almighty um, told them they're banished um, or barred from the the promised land for 40 years so 3,000 years later uh, these are the descendants that are looking to claim this
1: I I I confess that my my standpoint is that I don't and will never unless something yeah. conversional Paul-like happens to me because I'm an atheist I I'm never going to really understand the that that kind of you know it's part of the DNA it's part of the fabric of being Jewish it's part of the fabric of being a Muslim I suppose is that fundamental belief in you know, a monotheistic world, you know, there's one God and whatever the kind of variations on that, be it what happened with, you know, the the Catholic church, what happened with Christianity after Jesus and the Romans and what happened with, you know, the, 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 you know, Martin Luther and you, you, whatever happens, they still all kind of believe in that Abrahamic right. world where, you know, God spoke to him and, and that is the link. Um, and my problem with all of this is what if there is no God what was it all for? Right.
7: Built some yeah. lovely churches. Yeah, yeah, I get your point, but I mean, each to their own. Uh, I mean, look, what, you know, they've been there just as long as the Jews have. Why can't they just and just live?
1: The problem, yeah, but the problem is that the, 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 the interpretations of history are very, very different. The Jews would say, we have been there, it's been our homeland since, you know, as I say, three 3,000 years or however long you want to put on it. The, they would say the Palestinians are the kind of um, Johnny-come-latelys, and they've only recently decided that this is going to be their capital. Uh, a Palestinian would disagree and said the Palestinian race has been... Palestinians, Regard themselves as not Arabs, I gather. Again, a sort of learning curve yesterday. So it's all—it's very, very—it's very different to. I mean, um, I
7: mean, or- my, my. Fa- sorry to
1: cut No, you. go I on. Mean,
7: my um, heritage is—I've um, got a Moroccan parents. Right now, in my mum's town. There there have been Jewish uh, Moroccans there for for many, many hundreds of years when Ferdinand and Isabella kicked kicked them out of Spain during the Crusade. But
1: this this is the whole point, and if you really want to go back in history, Jesus was a Jew. And it it was, you know, because he became a prophet and and gave a sort of different slant and, and that's where the New Testament came in and Paul wrote most of the New Testament after his great conversion and all. I mean, you can go on and on and on and on, but basically it's all the same. It's the same belief in this one omnipotent and it's Jerusalem where he made contact, basically, for all of them. So they're so, they're so it's so similar, you know, you can eat meat this way, you can eat, have meat cooked that way. We wear this, we have this, we have the scroll, we have that. And you kind of look at it all, and I'm not being simplistic about this, and I'm not trying to be insulting, and in no way want to insult people from any faith. But when you look at it from a kind of atheistic point of view, you just think, my God, what a shame that this is happening, that you've got so much... Energy, But then again, you look at it and say, well, if if if, you know, if if God doesn't exist, you've you've created a kind of community. And what was heartwarming about it was and looking at it from the Jewish family point of view was that there were um, I was watching another documentary about Jews around the world and how literally I wouldn't know, obviously. But if you are Jewish and you meet another Jew somewhere in the world, you'll be invited to come around for some form of celebration to, to eat, to drink, to to bless, to continue. And it's that kind of, no matter where you are, you're one of us. And I'm kind of, kind of a bit jealous about that, really, but I just think sometimes it goes too far. And it's certainly the suggestion that they're chosen people and you just think, come on, you know, if you're going to have that attitude, that's going to create all sorts of tension. So... There's, there's, there's harm on both sides. I could go on and on and on. Anyway, David, thank you for being up, even if it's evening or morning or whatever it is. It's been very quiet today. You when I come in about two o'clock and I'm covering for Steve, and Leicester Square's full of people just going home. Today, there was nothing. We had a full rendition of. Uh Oh, King Creole and the Coconuts the other day at about 2.30 in the morning. That was great. There was hundreds of people singing. They'd all come out of the casino. They've obviously all won. Uh, morning, Ian, says Lynn in Bushy. Morning. Maybe both Israel and Palestine have the most wonderful chance to actually show the rest of the world what real peace could look like. I, 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 I think if we were talking about... I'm certainly not going to use the phrase normal people, but if we were talking about... um. Citizens of the world, other than this particular holy shrine area, um, I think you would say possibly. But I don't, I don't think that. Um, I just think there are a lot of people, particularly Israeli people, who don't really want to see peace. You know, they, they're used to living now with terrorism. They're used to, you know, you get checked when you go into a shop. Uh, everything that, you know, if you think it's bad here, I mean, in Israel, and people kind of got used to it as well. let will tell you the other interesting thing, again, looking at it from a sort of. Atheistic point of view was the reason Jerusalem, or one of the obviously Jerusalem, became in a hugely important part of the world and always has been for for many many years because of um, the uh, not just because of its proximity to to it was just sort of the centre of the region, but it's basically a hill. There's not much around, but what's really important about it and why it became such an important settlement, apart from all the religious aspects for it and all the stories about God. Was the fact it's got an underwater stream and there's got fresh water all the year round, which in in a place like that, although if you go to sort of Bethlehem, Gethsemane, places like that, that's that's slightly different. Uh, because it, it's beautiful by the by the uh, the, the Galilee, by the lake. Um, and it's really green, really green. So anyway, that's me with my sort of pathetic minor history lesson. Uh, Good morning to Ian, says Philip. Uh, you're using logic to come up with a solution to the Israeli... Policy. Yes, I think you're pro- you've probably... I know what you're going to say, and I think you're probably right. Humans are not logical. As long as both sides refuse to share a capital... And the Palestinians are intent on eliminating Israel. You'll never have peace, says Philip from Bournemouth. And Mina says, Silas would rather have a lack of peace because the army will look after the people of Israel. I think the tension is created and caused largely by the IDF's brutal treatment of Palestinians or anyone who sides with them. I personally believe it should be shared but I'm an atheist, so I see it from a common sense point of view. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe that's my problem and maybe your problem too, Mina. If you are an atheist, then you'll never really understand why people feel the way, the way that they do. But if you are an atheist, you actually look at it and you think, this is so solvable. What are you doing? But I'm not, so. Uh, Joy. Hi, Joy. Let's finish things off. What are your, what's your thought? I am
9: mean going to love these two basic questions. One, Donald Trump. We know he's not doing this for any altruistic reasons. We know he has his own agenda. However, did it occur to him and his cronies that the best way to handle a, a frost situation like this is to ensure that you communicate with Palestinians, you consult with them, and ensure that this is something that they're willing to go along with? You don't just make a decision because you think you're the man or because it's what Israel wants. It's, it's just not good enough, considering the Prime Minister is already on the investigation. But put that aside. You don't behave like that. You just don't. And I'm hoping that the Palestinian representatives, come and they stick with it. Do not have your meeting with my pen. They can speak it. My second question. Israel is supposed to belong to Jewish people, yeah? According to the Bible, uh, from the Bible and what have you. Now, could you please explain to me why where the Palestinians living in? Uh, Why were they there? Not necessarily why were they there. Why were Jewish people not there? the whole Jewish well, I mean, no. Well, I mean,
1: there's always been a small Jewish population. I think in, in 1917, when they did the sort of division by, by the British and the French, they did, I think the population was about 3%. It's obviously a lot bigger now. And there was a huge influx from then all the way through the 20th century of people coming from all over the world. And then, of course, after the Holocaust, you know, because the British were actually, before the Second World War, they were actually less sympathetic towards the, the, the sort of Israeli and the Zionist movement. They were actually a little bit more sympathetic towards Palestine and towards Jordan and towards various people there. But after the Second World War, well, what could you do but feel sympathy for the Jewish race? So that's exactly what happened. Joy, thank you very much for your call. Thanks to all of you for getting in touch with us. Um, You're listening to LBC. Steve Allen uh, still having a little bit of a rest this week. As I say, he'll be back for the uh, weekend. We're going to talk now about Gavin Williamson. Who's he? Well, if you didn't know him before, you've probably heard of him now. He's the Defence Secretary. And uh, like many of the Cabinet posts, he hasn't been long in the job. But he's come up with some pretty strong rhetoric. that may, have, And I suspect it'll go down very well with a lot of listeners to LBC. And I particularly want to hear from people who disagree with him. He says, quote, A dead terrorist can't cause any harm to Britain. Britons who fought for Islamic State abroad should be hunted down and killed to ensure they never return to the UK, the Defence Secretary Gavin Williamson has said. He's reiterated today. He's done a long interview in the Daily Mail. Uh, We've spoken to him. Sky I've spoken to him as well. We'll hear what he has to say after the news. He says it's what British people want. Do you?
0: This is LBC from Global, leading Britain's conversation with Ian Payne.
1: Good morning, Ian Payne in for Steve Allen. Three minutes past five o'clock, it's a Friday morning. About a month ago, the new Defence Secretary, Gavin Williamson, was quoted in the Sun newspaper uh, saying that basically if a British jihadist was found to have gone to Syria or Iraq and joined ISIS or was involved in any form of terror um, activity for them, they should be hunted down and, quote, eliminated. And everyone thought, oh, it's the Sun. I'm sure he didn't really say that, but he really did say that. And he's actually possibly gone a little further. Um, He said it again last week. He's done an interview with the Daily Mail today saying that a dead terrorist can't cause any harm to Britain. It's by far the strongest remarks yet from any sort of senior cabinet minister. Gavin Williamson suggested there was a deliberate targeting of British jihadists by the armed forces fighting ISIS as the uh, group retreats in Syria and Iraq. And he's told the Daily Mail, a dead terrorist can't cause any harm to Britain. I do not believe that any terrorist whether they come from this country or any other, should ever be allowed back into this country, we should do everything we can to destroy and eliminate that threat. Well, yesterday he also spoke to Sky News about this particular
10: subject. We need to destroy Daesh. We need to make sure that the people that operate in this co- death cult are not allowed to come... Uh, cause a threat to this country. The British people want to make sure that our streets are safe. Our police, our security services do an amazing job at doing that. But the military plays a vital role in terms of degrading and destroying that threat in so many countries right around the globe. I'm personally very proud of that. I think the British people incredibly proud of our armed forces for work they do, making sure that people who are threat to this country are not able to continue to threaten this country. That's what the British people want to know that their government is doing. That is what we will and continue to do.
0: Will you direct British armed forces to hunt down British jihadis?
10: You can obviously appreciate that. I'm not going to go into an operational discussion with yourself. What we need to do is make sure that we're doing everything we can do to eliminate the threat of extremism and terrorism reaching the streets of Britain. But so often people do not see that threat as something that is manifesting itself in lands abroad, but that is where it is manifesting itself. That's why our forces are constantly doing so much to make sure that that's eliminated. That's why we've had... 1,600 strikes across Iraq and Syria, making sure that people that are threatening our national security are eliminated. The territory that they control is reduced. That's what we have been doing for the last few years. Is that what we're going to continue to do going forward? It most certainly is.
1: So that's the Defence Secretary Gavin Williamson speaking yesterday. And, as I say, he's gone slightly further in the uh, Daily Mail today. He said, um, I don't believe that any terrorists, whether they come from this country or any other, should ever be allowed back into this country. We should do everything we can to destroy and eliminate that threat. He said, jihadist groups in Libya, Iraq, Syria, were breeding grounds for plotting attacks in the UK. He said, our job in terms of eliminating will not stop this year, will not stop next year. It's something we've got to continue to pursue. Now... A pretty forceful remarks. Normally there's a lot more diplomacy when um, cabinet ministers speak about sensitive issues like this. And it is a sensitive issue. If you're basically saying our troops are targeting British people who are, who are, who are fighting for the jihadis, looking for them particularly, and, quote, eliminating them, um, you know, a, ter- a dead terrorist is a good terrorist. That's how he would presumably describe this kind of thing. He said jihadist groups in Libya were breeding grounds for plotting attacks. His remarks, though, put him a lot at odds with uh, the head of the terrorism watchdog, uh, Max Hill, who's the independent reviewer of terrorism legislation. Um, he recently said the UK could attempt to reintegrate young and naive jihadists who wanted to return to the UK. So we have two very polarised uh, opinions on how to treat jihadists, how to treat young British, mostly men, who travel to Syria, who travel to Iraq for what they would see as a greater cause, who are prepared to fight for them, should we try and rehabilitate them, or should we just eliminate them? Mr Williamson says we should eliminate them, and he says that's what the British people want. So, LBC listeners, and if I could refer to you as British people, is it what you want? Do you want to see people eliminated? Do you want to see people actually targeted specifically if they are jihadists and they are working for this particular organisation. 0345 is the number to ring. Or do you feel, as Max Hill does, the independent reviewer of terrorism legislation, that we are in danger of, quote, losing a generation of men and women by automatically using the courts to punish them? So his is very much a carrot rather than a stick. So, what are the facts? More than 800 UK citizens are thought to have gone to fight for ISIS in Iraq and Syria. They include teenagers, they include women, they include young families. Uh, Mr Hill said, we've got to make sure that as they splinter and as they disperse across Iraq and Syria and other areas, we continue to hunt them down, make sure there is no safe place for them. Um, That they can't go to other countries preaching their hate, preaching their cult of death. Uh, Williamson defended himself. Uh, he said, The British people want to make sure that our streets are safe. The British people are incredibly proud of our armed forces, the work they do, making sure that the people who are a threat to this country are not able to continue to threaten the country. That's what the British people want the gov- to know their government is doing. This is what we will continue to do. What side of the fence are you? Would you just like to see anyone who does anything with DICE, with IS, with ISIS, however you want to refer them, just to be eliminated? Should they be targeted, or should they be try and be rehabilitated? To put not necessarily an arm around them, but at least say, "Of course, you're British. You know, you're welcome back into this country. But if you break the law, then you will face the courts." Or should they just be eliminated? I think Mr. Williamson. He's not. Talk- I don't think he's talking about hit squads running around the, the streets of Birmingham taking out people who've returned home. I think he's talking about targeting people in. Foreign countries, remember jihadi John was taken out wasn 't he and that was a specific targeting and certain figures who have um, British backgrounds have been uh, in that way targeted. do you think it 's good that the, that the army is doing exactly that? They are targeting British people, or should there be more leniency shown or Does it matter where people come from? If you're working for what we would describe as a terrorist organisation, then, you know, you are the enemy, and you'll be taken out, and it doesn't matter where you're from originally. 03456060973. Another take on it comes from the Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson, who yesterday delivered a speech on British efforts to tackle terrorism. It included hitting back at suggestions from the EU Brexit negotiator, Michel Barnier, that the vote to leave the bloc had meant Britain had decided to take a step back from cooperation. Good old Barnier, he's always bringing in other stuff. Every day around the world, uh, I can tell you that British serving men and women are putting themselves at risk to roll up terrorist networks, to expose what they're doing, to thwart them and bring them to justice, said Boris Johnson. They're making good on what the British Prime Minister has rightly called the unconditional commitment of the British people for the security of our European friends, not just in this continent and beyond. So whose side are you on? Do you agree with Gavin Williamson that British forces, when they are fighting ISIS abroad, should target Brits who have gone over to fight them? Should they be eliminated, or should they be allowed back into this country, as Max Hill suggests, and rehabilitated? Oh three four five six zero six zero nine seven three. Let's go to Jack. Jack's in Guildford. Whose side are you on, Jack? Morning.
11: Morning. Um, I don't believe we should have bombed ISIS at all. Um, I think we should have just left them alone in Syria, uh, and we should have just let Syria, Russia, and Iraq deal with the problem. Uh, All we're doing now is we're bombing them out of a place of safety, and what they're going to do is they're basically going to use their other passports they've got. This is one of the problems with dual nationality. Mm They're going to use their other passports to come back. They are now seasoned fighters. If, If Gavin Williamson wants to kill these people on the ground we are going to be having bordering on civil war in this country because if there's 800 of them coming back here and they start radicalizing other people uh, it, you know the hot brown stuff's gonna hit
1: the fan you don't think though that that by reducing Isis and literally reducing ISIS's manpower by bombing by not necessarily troops on the ground but by deliberately targeting their strongholds you look yes. at the you look at the so-called strong you look at the, the map of that region of northern Iraq and Syria about, I don't know, five years ago, and um, the, the land that was kind of occupied, if I can put it that way, by ISIS, was huge, uh, thousands and thousands of square kilometres, and now it's really, really reduced. You don't think that's been, for a, that's, that's been worth it.
11: Have you been to Palmyra, in the Syrian desert? No. Right, it's not sand, it's not palm trees, it's not oasis, it's rubble. It's basically stony rubble. So there's I mean, where they where you can go out into that desert and disappear quite merrily. I mean, it, you know, bombing them, bombing them out of Raqqa and all the rest of it. You should have left it to the Syrians and tied them up and their nutcase friends, the Hezbollah and all these uh, Iranian militia and what have you. Just tie them all up. We should have just left them alone and let them stay there. Now they can—they uh, haven't got a, uh, a place of comfort. They're out in this rubbly waste. What ground. would
1: you do if um, a teenager who had been training or fighting for ISIS uh, and whose parents live—I don't know—in Birmingham, Manchester, South London—they're coming home. They're stopped at, at Heathrow. The the it flat a red flag goes up at, at customs and they're arrested. What should, what should happen to people like that? Rehabilitation, prison. A trial?
11: Worse? Well, I th- well you know, they, they, they haven't got anywhere safe to stay over there, so where's the, where's the other safe place to go? I mean, you know, they're, they're homing. They'll home, mm. you know, and they'll come back here. Now, we don't know what state they are, what they're in. They can lie, would you lie de- their heads Would you stuff.
1: deport them somewhere? I don't know how that would work. Well, but the island
11: sounds like a good one. Where? Oh, Rockall.
1: Rockall? Yeah. OK, fair <laughs> enough. Jack, thank you. Whose side are you on? Gavin Williamson, the Defence Secretary, says we should deliberately target British jihadis and, quote, eliminate them. But um, that is not a view that is shared. Certainly a lot of Labour politicians have been very upset by uh, what they've heard from Gavin Williamson over the last, oh, I don't know... Month, but specifically uh, yesterday, uh, despite outrage from Labour uh, MPs, also a lot of people upset in the legal establishment. Mr Williamson says he's standing by his original decision that the extremists should not be allowed back on British soil at all. What would you do with them? There's a question. British returning jihadis. What would you do with them? Gavin Williamson doesn't even want them back in the country. What would you do? Would you rehabilitate them? 0345 The British people want to make sure that our streets are safe, Mr Williamson said. The British people are incredibly proud of our armed forces, the work they do, making sure that the people who are a threat to this country are not able to continue to threaten this country. Would you allow them back in? What would you do with them? That's what the British people want to know, that their government is doing. That is what we will continue to do. It's what the British people want. Is it?
0: Ian Payne on LBC. Call 0345 6060 973.
1: so whose side are you on? Are you on the side of the Defence Minister, Gavin Williamson, who has basically said that uh, jihadis who travel from this country to train and fight with ISIS wouldn't in his opinion, shouldn't even be allowed back in the country. And when they're out there, they should be specifically targeted by our troops to be, quote, eliminated, killed. Whereas um, it's not what Max Hill, who uh, is the sort of uh, the government's advisor on this particular subject, he, he's the part of the uh, legislator. He says that uh, these people should not actually be banned from coming back. They should be allowed back, not with welcome arms, but and tried to be re- rehabilitated. Whose side are you on? 03456060973. Does anyone have a more liberal view? Maybe you you share the view of, uh, uh, of Max Hill. I don't think many of our listeners will. Let's find out, shall we? Uh, if someone, says Dean, can be proved to be a terrorist, then they deserve to be jailed. If they're engaging our troops, they should be killed. If there isn't sufficient evidence to prosecute the suspect, then there can't be enough to execute them. What would qualify someone to make that list. Phillips in Bournemouth Brits that have never, that, sorry, Brits that have left the country to fight for ISIS are on the battlefield so they're legitimate targets in conflict, you hunt your enemy to eliminate him, it's the duty of the government to protect its citizens, so as far as I'm concerned go ahead and take him out, says Philip. From Bournemouth. And Lynn says, you're not British if you fight for another state with whom we're at war. I've reached the point where I no longer can trust some of my fellow citizens. No, not these fighting for ISIS, but the utterly wet liberals who care more about criminals than victims. Except when it comes to sex crimes, when the rights of so-called victims deny some even the latest and faintest modicum of justice. It's time we stopped being leftist liberals. They have too much power. Let's go to Mike. He's in Sussex. Morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hello? Hello? What are you going to do with the jihadis?
6: uh, um, Well, just
1: from my experience, I uh, did three operational tours in
6: Afghanistan, and we had them fighting against us out there. We used to hear them on the um, ICOM radios. Right. Um, So I've I've got no time for them, personally, and I think we shouldn't be, A, spending money on them when they come back to the UK, because... We don't spend money on our own people. So give us a, bit more, give us a and... bit
1: more detail of, of where you were, what you were doing, and the sort of people you were listening to.
6: Uh, I was in the infantry, so we'd be out doing um, fighting patrols and sang in with the Kala. Um, and we used to have the ANA, the, the Afghan National Army with us, who would have icon radio to listen to the chatter of the uh, Taliban and the fighters against us.
1: Okay, And quite
6: often we'd have um, British sort of Birmingham accent people on the um, radio saying, oh, we can, basically, our patrol, we can see them, come, can see them fighting coming. Fighting for the Taliban? Yes, yeah, definitely. Um, and when we'd had be in a contact, when we'd find out where the um, the firing point was, we'd often, the, um, the Afghans used to wear um, sandals made in West Germany so we could see their footprints, but then we'd find ones with Nike and Adidas and stuff like that, and we'd knew that they were the uh, sort of British fighters.
8: Really?
1: So
6: it's, it's not a new problem. So I think what's happening now is the ones that's been fighting over there Sort of moved over to Syria and places like that. So did you ever, did you ever, them.
1: did you ever get the chance to speak to a, a, a captured enemy, maybe a British one?
6: Not British ones. We captured a few um, Afghans, but the, they were actively hate. Nobody. The Afghan army used to actively look for the um, the foreign fighters because they shouldn't have. They didn't want them there, and they said, "Why were they there? It's not their fight." They deal with those. We never used to deal with them.
1: And did you ever hear in the sort of radio chatter something of the reason for their enmity?
6: Oh, no, the radio chatter, that was just to uh, target the patrol that was coming towards them. So,
1: right.
6: But sometimes I hear them moaning about why we was out, because it, um, it's obviously freezing cold over there in the winter, and if we were out, they had to be out. And so it, that was quite amusing. You'd hear them moaning about, why can't they just stay at the camp? <laughs> uh, they sit <started> minus <laughs> the five, and they're, they're moaning. But
1: Sorry, we're fighting.
6: moaning about them ever, about the weather all the time.
1: So, what would your view be if someone arrived back at Heathrow or Gatwick and he was uh, known to being a returning British jihadi?
6: We need to have some sort of not as bad as Guantanamo, but they've got to be locked up separately. I don't think you can rehabilitate these people. It's in them. They they hate their way our way of life. They want to fight a life. My, I think how they...
1: my only problem with the sort of Guantanamo is it, it does it does it's the it's the greatest recruiter for the enemy that there can be, isn't it?
6: Yeah, we don't need. We need like a light version of it, something where they're kept separately from. I don't. Know, it's a hard one, isn't it? Not
1: seen, not heard. You don't fair want fair. any any pictures of people wearing orange jumpsuits. Thank you very much.
6: No, exactly, definitely not. Because that just makes it better for them. But we need. They can't be put back into society. They don't want this society.
1: That's the problem. Yeah. Like, uh, versus, I, I, yeah. I don't know what they want. <laughs> Uh, Mike, listen. Thanks very much for your call. That's Mike, who had a few tours as a soldier in Afghanistan. You used to hear people with Birmingham accents um, on the radio uh, working for the fighting for the t- Taliban. I've, I'd love to know what it is. I want, I'd love to know what the mindset is that makes someone do that. I'll put it out there. I won't expect anyone to to bring in or 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 to text, but obviously you you can be anonymous if you want. You don't have to give your real name. We'll give you an alias if you prefer what What is in the heads of people who want who live here but then want to go out and fight for ISIS or for terrorist organizations or for the Taliban or however you want to describe it? What is the mindset? Why are you so angry what What is it that you object to because Britain is bombing ISIS you feel you need to go and sort of even up the score Is that what it is oh three four five six oh six oh 973 as I say not many people on the left more liberal side of this of dealing with jihadists returning jihadists and try and rehabilitate them uh, most people on the side I think of Gavin Williamson speaking some sense say a lot of, a lot of you at last Says Alan, a politician who speaks some sense, get rid of those who seek only to do us harm. The only good jihadist is a dead one. More power to Mr. Williamson, but I fear that he'll only be ridiculed by the namby-pamby wet and spineless government, and regrettably the British population in general, too, when the next terrorist attack happens. We'll have all the platitudes and bleatings of the do-gooders, as always. Kill all terrorists. I don't want my taxes to keep these people alive in prison. They care nothing for my life, so I'm damn sure I care nothing for theirs speak to Yao in Croydon. Good morning.
12: Uh, Hi, Ian. Hi. I I, I feel I've been stitched up. Why? Um, I thought I was going to be next to speak to you, and then someone jumped in the queue before me. Oh,
1: I'm very, very sorry. Would you still talk to me now anyway? I'll I'll, I'll forgive you. Thank you very much. On you Um, go. (laughs) I
12: I feel basically my my, uh, my opinion is that, one, if someone leaves this country to go and fight for the enemy, under no circumstances whatsoever should they be allowed back into the country. And I
1: think... Um, what Britain are you going to do with them?
12: Well, it's not a case of what am I going to do with them. It's a case of this country needs to be kept safe.
1: No, you've got a guy coming back from yeah. from abroad, whatever they've been doing, with a British passport. What are you going to do? Right.
12: You, giving a British passport to me is a privilege. Now, if you have been given a privilege and you abuse the privilege, it should be taken away from you. Mm-hmm. If there is no law in this country that says your passport can't be taken away from you. It needs to be put in law. Because I think it's about time that Britain got a bit serious. I mean, just look at um, Angela Merkel, for example. Because uh, what happened in in, in Germany uh, a few months ago is because of the the fact of they've got two relaxed um, immigration laws. I know it sounds a bit cruel, but at the end of the day, if if I was to travel to another country... no one needs to tell me that I need to abide by lo- the laws of that country. If I go to one of the, those uh, Saudi Arabian countries that, just for argument's sake, you're not supposed to be seen hand-in-hand um, hand with your girlfriend or whatever, then I don't do it. It's as simple as that. And uh, I think people who travel should obey the laws. Now, if you're born in this country
11: mm-hmm.
12: and you've got citizenship, then you still have to abide by the laws. Of OK, authority. so,
1: I'll, I mean, I'll repeat the question. If, yeah. if, you, if someone coming back, a jihadist is coming back, and yeah. he's known to the authorities or suspected, su- seriously suspected of being involved with ISIS and fighting, and he's returning home, he's got yeah. a British passport, he's at custom control, what do you physically do with him?
12: Well, firstly, he, should be ter- uh, he, he or she should be detained. Right. And I still believe that um, there should be a law that should... Um, make them lose their... their so, of course, I mean...
1: So what do they... Could you send them to prison, or do you try to send them back somewhere else? Or, I mean, if they're well, British, okay. and their parents are here, you know, they, they want to go back to Croydon, or they want to go back to uh, put Brent. Put
12: them in prison. Huh?
1: Put them in prison. Well, you have to have a trial first, wouldn't you, or would you? Well,
12: yeah, try them, and... Basically, they need to be separate from the people who they are... potentially going to...
1: going to, going to damage. Yeah.
12: Because... Otherwise, people in this country are not being looked after. We, we, we elect... Um, so there's
1: no sense, as Max Hill is suggesting, who's yeah. from the sort of legislative slide of this, he's suggesting we should try and rehabilitate these people and convince them they're wrong. You think there's no point yeah. doing that?
12: So, um, with all due respect, people who get to that stage, to me... I mean, well, I'm a Christian, and I believe there should there should be forgiveness and all that kind of stuff, but there's a certain stage that you reach where you've reached what I call the point of no return.
1: Right. And that is literally the point yeah. of no return. The
12: only thing I don't agree with, well, obviously, is to eliminate them as in killing
1: them. Mm-hmm. But if there's a war, mm-hmm. that's the nature of war. You okay. Die, uh, all right, Yao. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry we didn't come to you immediately. 03456060973. Oh, 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 three. Should we target and eliminate these people in war, and what should we do when they return home? Detain them, put them on trial, rehabilitate them, or say you're not coming in, taking away their passport. 03456060973. Oh, six, oh, six, oh, three. Give us a
0: Ian Payne on LBC. Call 03456060973. Oh,
1: I'm asking whether or not you agree with the comments reiterated uh, today in the Daily Mail and also speaking to various media outlets yesterday from the Defence Secretary, Gavin Williamson, who basically says that if you go and fight for ISIS and you're British, you should never be allowed back. Also, you should be hunted down and killed. Uh, So whilst the group ISIS retreats in Syria and Iraq, he is suggesting that British... Forces. uh, We're not talking about troops on the ground here, but we're talking presumably about those who are fighting ISIS. Um, He would wish that they would hunt them down and kill them and not them allow them back here. However, that's put him at odds with um, many Labour MPs who kind of can't quite believe that a defence secretary should say something so irresponsible. Um, And also with Max Hill. He is the head of the terrorism watchdog, the independent reviewer of terrorism legislation. He recently said the UK could attempt to reintegrate young and naive jihadists who wanted to return to the UK. So whose side are you on? Should they be hunted down and killed? Should they be reconciled brought back into the country rehabilitated or should there be some sort of halfway house as soon as they try and come back to this country their passport is withdrawn and they have to face a trial 0345 so i suppose there's sort of three um sets of opinions there let's go to jason who's in sussex good morning good morning
13: ian good morning. um yes uh I'm fully behind uh, what the uh, Labour MP said and the sec- uh, Shadow Defence Secretary. Um, I think they should be... Given, uh, the full weight of the state should be should persecute, hunt them down, etc. MI6 and uh, SAS and also our armed force... Hold on, let me get this robots. right. So you're,
1: so you're agreeing not with the Shadow, you're agreeing with the Defence Secretary, Gavin Williamson, who says they Secretary, should yeah, be hunted yeah. down and killed.
13: Abs- absolute on foreign soil. So if they're when being, they if back, they're retreat, when they come it, back to this country, yeah, they should be arrested and put on trial at the Hague. So if, ISIS if and they're if they're have committed war crimes, if they're
1: in it's retreat, as as that. In, if they're in retreat, matter. they should be specifically hunted down and killed, and not correct. correct rounded up. Because
13: you cannot. There's no. There's no point. What do you do? Do you state brainwash them? I.e., when they come back, oh yes. We state brainwash them to 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 bring them round to our I, way of thinking, I, I, ha- or I, I have a problem with it. Let them believe what they believe, and you know, never the twain shall meet.
1: Okay, so my my problem with um, the rehabilitation argument is, although it's it's very noble, I would love to believe it's possible. I just think that quite the opposite would happen. They'd come back, they'd they'd be yeah. they'd, they'd they'd end up given a prison sentence and be radicalised in prison. That you know, exactly. that's an easy yeah, no, way of looking at fair, it. But it, that seems to be what happens, isn't it?
13: Yeah, it is. But if we put them in the Hague, it's not our problem. It becomes a European Union, and they can spend that fifty billion we're giving to them on sorting it out. <laughs> it's simple I'll, as that. It's uh, as simple as that. Yeah, yeah,
1: I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, you might be right. You, know? you give it, give, give them the problem. It's not a bad idea.
13: Uh, exa- well, listen, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not being funny, but these people have been radicalised, not only in this country, but all over Europe, etc., because of uh, because of whatever immigration policies or because of whatever uh, we've had, uh, people like Abu Hans are coming to Finsbury Mosque and preaching hate, etc., so on and so forth. Well, I'm sorry, let's sort it out. Let's, let's put the line in the sand, literally, and mm-hmm. say, right, you know, you've done this. If you go across there and you fight for ISIS they have committed war crimes against the civilian population of those countries, you were a member of it, we can prove that you were a member of it, you will stand trial in the Hague if you come back to this country the other, the, the other thing is we should use MI6 and the SAS and our armed forces on the ground in the, in the war zones to persecute and hunt them down it is as simple as that
1: ok Jason, you know, thank you, uh, let's go to Tim he's in Twickenham, is it simple for you Tim?
14: Absolutely. I oh, I I can't even believe that you're having this conversation. I mean, these are British subjects or so-called British subjects. They've gone over to Syria to fight for a terrorist organisation. What have they committed as soon as they've left the country? Treason. That's what they committed. There's no question
1: about it. How would you how would you react to so I've got a a tweet here from Darcy who says, "All of these people like yourself, Tim, baying for blood." You call yourselves British. The British way is we gather the evidence, we put them on trial. If you want extrajudicial killings, go and join ISIS.
8: <laughs> oh,
14: God. Look, why waste your money? Why waste money doing that? We know who they are. What about the 400 that have come back to this country, that are free at the moment? They know who they are. Our Secret Service must know... Who these people are? Why haven't they been rounded
1: up?: Because if you, uh, experience proves that if you go rounding up people willy-nilly, uh, even if you have proof or not, before a trial, you cause resentment within that community, and people who were not hardliners become hardliners as a result. It's a recruiting tool for the enemy. <laughs> oh God,
14: shouldn't we show a hard line too? What what's, what what is wrong? Give me, tell, with
1: me, us tell me tell me how how does your hard line manifest itself? What are we not doing that you would do further? We're too soft. What we would we do? Go like what? What would you what would you do practically?
14: Well, what uh, towards the people that are, have come back and yeah? So I'll
1: give you the same question I've given a couple of listeners: Heathrow customs, British passport. Red flag goes up and they think, hmm, this person's returning from Syria. We think. What do you do? Hold them.
14: Arrest them straight away. At least. Don't let them go. What happens
1: if you haven't got proof? They've just flagged a warning.
14: Well, why would there be a red flag if they haven't got any proof?
1: Well, presumably the proof would, it would be, you know, security... Uh, it would be so security details that wouldn't classified. be... That would be, you know, classified, as the Americans would say. Classified.
14: Look, if a red flag goes up on anyone, you've got to hold them straight away. Right. As far as I'm concerned.
1: You can only hold them for a certain period of time, that's the law. Until you've got well, some proof, or you charge them. Well,
14: 70, I think it's 72. I have no idea one, what it? it would
1: be. I think you'd probably get a bit longer for this sort of... For, for a, a, a terrorism subject, but...
14: What? Yeah. Well, I mean, you've got to ask the question, what the hell were you doing out there, firstly, haven't you? Yep, absolutely. I mean, you know, these people have traded their own country. They call it their own country as a convenience for them after time. I can't, you know, this sort of thing, we should clamp down on it. I mean, Christ almighty, look what's happened in Germany, a liberal Germany that's welcomed... You know, no, no no, questions asked. Please come over. Look what's happened. It's chaos.
1: OK, Tim, I think I know where you're coming from. And to be honest with you, it's almost uh, unanimous. In fact, it is unanimous. We've yet to... Well, apart from that one um, Darcy tweet, we haven't really had anyone who is saying we should be much more humanitarian about this whole problem, most of you are saying, yeah, Gavin Williamson's right, and I'd go further. I'd hunt them down, I'd put them on trial, I'd detain them, I'd take away their passport. Um, basically, this has got a m- total miscomprehension as to why anyone who calls himself British and has a British passport would go and fight Britain. In a faraway land, oh three four five six oh six oh nine seven three is the number to ring. I would love to hear from people who could, as I say, you can be anonymous. Who would love to try and get into the head of some of these people? I still don't quite understand what what that's about. I'm assuming it's because you you feel more in tune with people who live there and who have a certain type of belief. Not that you see yourself as a terrorist, just that you are defending your, if not country, then you are defending people of your belief, your brethren, who are being attacked by us. So you think you have more of a connection with them than you do with people here. I'm not sure. Oh three four five six oh six oh nine seven three. That's That's someone I'd love to hear from, who could try and explain the workings inside the uh, jihadist mind. Quick word with Joshua, who's in Birmingham. Hello, Joshua. Hello. Morning. Morning.
3: All right. Um, yeah, well, my view on it is a bit different. I, I, I kind of think that they should just be sent straight back to Syria, where they've been come from, because if you're a UK citizen and you've made a conscious decision to fly out to a country to cause a situation to harm the UK, then you shouldn't be allowed back in there, country then. You should be, you should get detained at that court. Right? I don't even know so much. about... What, what
1: about trial. having some sort of fair trial? That's what our justice system's based on.
3: Yeah, but at the end of the day, you want to talk about the justice system. I believe what if people are, are walking on eggshells in this situation? It's almost like you're standing there with a gun and a monster's running at you. You know you're about to be killed, but you don't shoot. You know what I mean? Like you have you have to sometimes. Put but
1: do hasn't law. hasn't experience taught us? that if you you persecute a particular part of society, they will expand. They're, they will get sympathy from people who otherwise wouldn't be on their side.
3: That's yeah, the okay, danger. Where are you coming from with that? Well. at the same time, no, because again, the reason why they're doing these things in the first place, they've got reasons. If you sat Jihadist down and asked him, what is he doing? Why is he doing this? He can reel out reasons. At the end of the day, we might not want to hear it, but it's, 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 it's the US and our country that are getting involved with theirs causing war in their country, killing their families and their children why they are re- retaliating and coming back to us and that's the thing, nobody actually wants to sit there and, and, and admit that but that is the problem we keep interfering with them so now they're interfering with us but at the end of the day if you've got a UK citizen who's leaving this country to fight against their own country no, they shouldn't be allowed back they should be sent back to the country where they went from The only reason that they're coming back is because the conditions of that country are far from the conditions of the UK. You know I mean? They'd be much comfortable back in the UK. It shouldn't be.
1: Very interesting call, and and, um, very well put. Thank you. Joshua in Birmingham. Unless you deal with the ideology, says Dave, then there'll always be recruits. It's like dealing with the drips from a leaky faucet, not the cause of the leak. Mina says, please don't let these evil people back in the country. They wanted to fight for ISIS. They should stay there and meet the consequences of that choice. There are thousands already being watched here in the UK, some of which have been part of attacks in Manchester and London. They are laughing at us. That's what I don't really understand. I can understand that there might be a few loose wheels around saying, well, you know, what you've done, I need to go and protect my brethren and all the rest of it. But 28,000 people on MI5's watch list. That I don't understand. Why are so many people anti the country where they live? 03456060973. This is Ian Payne in for Steve Allen. The t-
0: Ian Payne on LBC.
1: Um, right, so you've probably heard from the Travel If you're just turning on um, LBC and you're, you're making your way into London and you come in by the A40, stop. Don't do it. Um, Greenford, Park Royal, all the way in. Yeah, if you know that area, and I do, to my cost, that is going to have a knock-on effect for the whole of West London. So if you're driving into to London today, this morning, be warned that 10 to 6, there's already a massive tailback, and if experience tells me anything, it tells me these things last for a long time. The police say it could last a long time after accident. So coming in on the A40, don't. Try and find an alternative route, or I suggest they'll all be blocked now. Right, um, we we're talking about... The the suggestion by Gavin Williamson that the people who fight for ISIS who are British abroad should not be allowed back to this country, they should actually be tracked down and killed... Um which is a fairly blunt thing to say, uh, a lot of Labour MPs, the uh, terrorism watchdog leader says that's not how we should do it, we should try and um, rehabilitate them. Somewhere in the middle, I was speaking to uh, one caller who was saying, you know, how long can they be detained, they've got to be left, uh, let go after 72 hours if they come back to this country. Well, on terrorism suspect offences or uh, suspicion of uh, the law is now you can hold them for 28 days which is a huge ima- increase on the, on the uh, amount of time you can have someone without charging them for a normal suspected crime the Labour Party actually wanted 44 days but uh, they weren't allowed to get a vote on that so this is a very serious subject taken extremely serious by the authorities and the security services what should we do with returning jihadis kill them Jail them, deport them, take away their passport, hold them. Oh three four five six oh six oh nine seven three. Very few people disagreeing with the Defence Secretary Gavin Williamson, who says we should hunt them down. Jerry is in uh, Nevada. Hello, Jerry. Nevada,
15: correct? Las Vegas. Yeah. Very um, nice. It's nice. Thanks for taking the call. Well, it's this time. Yes. Very nice. Very well, good. Very agreeable. Um, you know, it, it, it's such a complicated issue. I think the only mistake the uh, minister made was revealing his hand. He, should be a, what he said. He, I think, is correct. This should be an unofficial policy, really. That's the mistake he made by just telling everyone. He's just opened. His, he's opened the uh, unlocked the doors. Really. I mean, if you but uh, you want to bring it back to to, uh, to putting in prisons. On one uh, one week, you might be doing a discussion about how the prisons can't cope. With their domestic prisoners and drug problems, all manner of different things. Yet you've got people who are living in the country, British passport, who supposedly are meant to have some kind of allegiance to the country. Yet they decide to travel abroad for nefarious reasons. Well, we know what those those reasons are. I I think the government could put in uh, when you've got certain countries which are uh, there's some sort of military action going on. Once uh, you could put a visa, uh, qualification in place, like many years ago to come to the United States, you had to apply for a visa. So, unless you're working for, employed by, uh, a, a charity or you've got official, uh, justification for being in a country working, uh, as in, uh, genuine bona fide employment, then you have no, of course, what reason would I want to be going to Syria or, or, uh, you know, any of the uh, war-torn countries, or it might have been Afghanistan, is it, it's completely preposterous. Well, I, I, mean, you're I not, mean, you're not
1: you're not going to get on a plane and go straight to Syria. Are you? You're going to get on a plane and go to <laughs> Turkey, and then cross down however you can do it. So that's should we be sort of stopping everyone who's getting on a plane to Turkey?
15: Well, that, uh, the, the, surely, they're, unless they buy, they're buying two tickets, then then I uh, maybe the relationship with uh, the. Uh, their partners in Turkey, in uh, Istanbul, or Ankara, or whatever it is, they're not doing their job correctly. I mean, but uh, all right. So I'm trying to be reasonable. So now I suppose we we'll go back to the original point about what the minister said. Then uh, I think some. I only caught a few of the uh, tail end of some of the comments from the previous callers. I caught. I was interested here one one of your tweets where a lady I think said, "This is the UK. We're not li- we're not living in the, in the fifties. These are different times. You 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 have to play by different rules. You you adapt to your." Your surroundings, you know you, and the, uh, treat people with the the the, uh, the full uh, mechanism of the British justice when they don't really appreciate what the country has to offer them in the first place.
1: Mm.
15: Why would you? Uh, they don't deserve that. Do they? I mean if I? I don't think so. No,
1: I, 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 I think yeah. I think I think it's a bit unhelpful to say hunt them down and kill them, but I think you know full force of the law, and I think that is going on anyway. Why? Why do you live in Vegas, by the way? Are you. Because <laughs> I'm a gambling junkie, no, no. Are you?
15: <laughs> it was uh, 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 no, no, no. I, I, I gamble now and then, but you know, you don't have to be a gambler. It's just a uh, relationship kept me here, and it, ah. it's complicated. Because I, I, I don't, I, don't, I didn't. Uh, uh, it was a temporary situation, which <laughs> my girlfriend would well argue the point. Well, it, it got out of hand really, but that, that's there. Uh, I would. It's funny that I, in a connected point, uh, she wanted to talk about talking about living in the UK. And I found that last year, I just by chance I looked up for some information, and to come back for a British citizen, if we got married, uh, I would need. Well, I we'll, wouldn't we'll come back with any, without any money anyway, because that's a ridiculous thing to do. But you, I would have to uh, show that I've got at least basically nearly twenty grand, even though I'm a British citizen, and just because she isn't, even if she was married to me. And I thought I can't believe that, and, and, and it seems like the government focuses on is focus on in certain areas the the uh, immigration the 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 people traveling abroad they do what they want someone who's a british as a british passport i've got a u.s passport as well but a british passport and if i got married i've got to show straight away 20 grand well the money wasn't an issue to be honest with you that was not a problem but i was surprised do you think they'll do do that to Meghan markle uh, of course they will.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I've got to go. Jerry. I've got to go. Thank you very much for talking to us, though. That's Jerry who joins us from Las Vegas, Nevada, where the killers are from. Uh, finally, John T. is in St. John's Wood, and you're going to tell me why jihadists do this. Four reasons, I gather. Over you go.
8: Four reasons, yes, Ian. One, need for identity. Two, desire for purpose. Three, need for a be- sense of belonging. And four because they need simple solutions, binary solutions. Those are the four reasons.
1: What do you mean? What, the, the, the first three I understand. What's the last one? Binary solutions. I don't understand.
8: Well, jihadism puts everything into the world of who's good and who's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, That's what happens when people are... No grey areas. Eating, no grey areas. Simple, they don't have to think. And those. And that's why you generally get young people getting into jihadism, because... So these are people who
1: are disaffected uh, haven't made a great success of their life. Losers, as Donald Trump famously no, called them. No, not no.
8: necessarily. Not always losers. Not necessarily. You can also have very intelligent people who are just want simplicity and want have some type of emotional dysfunction mm. and need these things. It, they, not necessarily a loser, as in someone who's got no talent. Somebody but is life, very very talent.
1: Ba- is life very bad for them living here?
8: Um, it doesn't always have to be that they're in impo- This is the thing. It's not that necessarily that they're poor, that they're rich, that they're middle class It's they're disaffected. It's a, it's the causes are a lot deeper than people like to care to have a look at. And people get involved in this just in the same way as you might get involved in people get involved in drugs, they get involved in crime. And they get involved in this, but this is particularly malicious.
1: Thank you very much indeed for pointing that out, John T. Um I'd love to ex- expand to that, but time has beaten us. It's approaching six o'clock here on LBC. Uh, well, Let's just read out a couple more texts and tweets. There are loads of them. How on earth says... Uh, doesn't say. How on earth do you do rehabilitate someone who's been trained to kill indiscriminately in the name of God? Anyone who likes to give a chance to such individuals should also be kicked out of the country... Or locked up. Thank you very much indeed. One hour before Nick Ferrari at breakfast, um, I know that he's going to be talking about the Brexit situation. Theresa May thinks she might have a get, have a get out of jail card vis a vis the Irish problem and the uh, border. She's actually in Brussels now, is she? Go, that was a bit early. Uh, so, um, Nick's going to talk about that. We're going to talk about universities. Another damning report this morning about English universities. This one's from the National Audit Office, which is the government's public spending watchdog. They say some universities could be mis-selling degree courses to students. So basically they're saying students are taking out loans, but there's no sort of financial regulation, there's no advice. It's a basically unregulated market. And they say that people going to university are being completely ripped off.
0: This is LBC from Global. Leading Britain's conversation with
1: Ian Payne. Good morning. Just uh, seeing some pictures, by the way. What an early start for the Prime Minister this morning. She was already in Brussels with uh, David Davis, the Brexit negotiator. Michelle Barnier is there as well. There has been lots of hugs, particularly um, a firm hug, I think we could call it, from uh, David Davis and uh, Barnier. Uh, so they are already in Brussels, ready to start. They're basically, they've got to get this done by Sunday, and they've got to sort out what's happening with the Irish border. Apparently, they seem to have come up with a different language. It's always a, just a way of describing the legislation that does it, and it'll depend on the DUP saying yes or no to this. So we'll keep an eye on that. I know that uh, Nick Ferrari at breakfast will be doing just that as well at 7 o'clock. But let's plough on with our discussion about universities as well. There's been another bad report about universities... Uh, this morning, the government's public spending watchdog, the National Audit Office, says some universities are, could be mis-selling degree courses to students. They're a waste of money. They're too expensive. They're not regulated. They say many students are taking out loans without any advice. It's a market that's basically unregulated because you know it's new and students, the sixteen, seventeen, making decision to go to university. Yeah, I'll get a degree. I'll get a loan. Blah blah blah. But there's no choice. It's not like you can go to you know compare the market and go oh that offers that university's offering this and that offering. and what's happening is that a lot of students who have come from sort of um, a sort of a poorer working class background which is what this kind of expansion of entry into university was all about are suffering as a result um they're not getting as good a loans they are trying to get uh, cheaper loans they end up at cheaper universities so it's not really reflecting so money and privilege And where you come from is still having an effect on the university system. And maybe that idea of um, sharing out um, the uh, the, the society and making it a a much uh, more equitable place isn't really working. So they say, the National Audit Office, they want tighter controls. They say if this was a normal financial... Um, package that you were being offered, um, if you were buying something from the financial sector, there would be much more regulation as there wasn't for PPI, you know, or for all that. There's no regulation here. They say the average loans that leaves graduates with debts of up to 50,000 pounds, it can be more than that. And they say they often, the courses don't give value for money. Uh, the, it comes, of course, after the revelations concerning the outrageous salaries university chiefs receive, the latest being the departing vice-chancellor at Bath Spa University. You probably saw this yesterday. She's leaving. She's receiving a goodbye package worth more than £800,000 for the year. I wonder, could these stories be linked? Universities charge exorbitant fees... And most of it ends up in the pockets of the bosses. Could be a link, couldn't there? I'd like to know whether you think our universities are working. It was a grand idea, wasn't it, just to open them up and people would have to pay for the right. Not when I went to university, we got grants. We were paid to go to university. Totally the opposite now. Is our university system actually working, and should the financial loan system be much more regulated? 0345 6060 I'd like to say we can speak to uh, Joe Raymond now, Labour Councillor for Bath, and it was actually your formal complaint about that massive payoff of £800,000 that forced the university's regulator interaction, isn't it?
16: Uh, yeah, well, hopefully they're going to be investigating that, but uh, they announced this week that they will be investigating... Uh, the complaint that I've done about the other vice chancellor in Bath, um, the vice chancellor of the University of Bath, uh, who's getting a similar uh, payoff. Oh, she's uh, only getting five hundred
1: and fifty, isn't she? Cheap uh, at the price. She,
16: she'll be <laughs> she'll be getting about seven hundred thousand uh, pounds before she before she leaves uh, in early twenty nineteen. Uh, plus, she's having a thirty thousand pound car loan written off.
1: It's good um, isn't it, it
16: has, well, how did you find out about again? this uh well they announced they announced that um uh, uh when when she she announced her resignation um that this just shows um the the utter failure in governance in our higher education sector um uh you know th- this issue around the national order office you know, tuition fees uh, i have never agreed with they they're not a good thing. Um, and I don't. I, I think that the the language that this this National Audit Office report is couched in really shows why they're not a good thing. You know, higher education is for the benefit of society, not not just for the individual. Mm. Um, but but what we're seeing is 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 that principle of higher education being a good for society that we should be paying for out of the collective purse, yeah, uh, to benefit society. That's that being disregarded by... Do you, by do you think
1: there's a link... Their governing do you think there's a link, Joe? I'm speaking to Joe Raymond, who's a Labour councillor for Bath, who's been very involved in all this um, huge salaries that then pay off... So, do you, is there a link between students having to pay to go to university and a massive increase in the salaries of these people?
16: Uh, there is. Um, it's not necessarily that universities have more money now, because obviously the coalition government cut most of their public grant funding. Um, But what it has done is that it's made universities into more businesses. And universities are not businesses, and they should not be businesses. They are there to provide education and research. They are not there to be making money. Uh, It goes against the very heart of what education is about, uh, if we're going to be making them act like businesses. Uh, and and all the time we make them act like businesses that then that this is what this is what we get as a result we get people uh you know showing executive greed uh and we get these this poor governance that's led to it the
1: the idea behind expanding universities was, wasn't just to to make uh, money it was to allow people from less privileged backgrounds a oh. chance to go would you agree that that has worked
16: um well well you know i think that um since tuition fees were introduced um quite some time ago uh i think that that more working class young people have been going to university and that is a good thing but i don't necessarily think that that is because of tuition fees or tu- or that tuition fees were a necessary part of that um and i think dropout rates uh, are much higher now for working class uh, young people than there were before because it's not just about the tuition fees; it's also about the cost of living and the fact that rents on campuses are skyrocketing. Um, uh, at the same time as you know, we've got vice chancellors like like in Bath, for example, um, either getting a, a free house in the centre of Bath in the case of the University of Bath, mm. or, or or an extra bit on top of their salary for their housing. Is, it, in the case and, of and is it
1: your understanding that before the, the, the loan system came in and, and universities claimed that they were impoverished, is it your understanding that the salaries were nowhere near as high as they are now? Is there a correlation?
16: Yeah, no, there's been a massive explosion in recent years in uh, uh, in, in Vice-Chancellor pay. Um, and and that that is, like I say, it's not it's not because they've got more money now is because um, they're acting more like businesses now, hmm. uh, and and we've seen in the uh, in the private sector, especially, we do see massive pay inequality, where those at the top get paid huge inflation-busting pay rises that, that they don't need, yeah. while people at the bottom are suffering and struggling more and more to pay their bills, with some going to food banks. Uh, that is what you get. Um, if if you're making universities act like businesses. uh, And, you know, universities should be showing resistance to this, but they're not.
1: Okay, well, Um, let's see if we can get some people who have actually been at university to give a comment on this, both now and previously. Thank you, Joe. Joe Raymond, who is a Labour councillor, very pertinently in Bath, and uh, it was his complaint that started off this whole investigation to how much these vice-chancellors are paid, so, I mean, I can break it down for you. I mean, I want to talk about what the, the National Audit Office said, which was, well, they did a survey. They said uh, 32% of uni- university students think their course offers value for money. So that's only a third of them think it offers value for money. £9 billion pounds has been put up front for funding for further educate, higher education in England. Average debt on graduation for a student starting a course in 2017, £50,000. 26% of 18-year-olds from disadvantaged backgrounds are now entering higher education age 18 or 19. That's got to be a good thing. It is causing a slightly problem in the job market. I know certainly from my experience and my kids, I've got one who left university about three years ago, or two years ago, and one has literally just left. Um, and finding a job is not easy. It's never been easy, but I think it's harder now because there's more people in the market, and I think more people, because what you do is when you give... More people the chance of earning more and having a so called better job, which is effectively what university does or what people think it does you 're actually crowding a certain sector of the market so that the, the the sort of jobs that people did before, and this has been said many times, be it you know plumber joiner uh, fireman carpenter you know aren 't being filled um, you know a lot of technical jobs aren 't being filled, but a lot of people going for sort of media jobs as well i might be wrong what's your experience of this i'd love to know if you're a student now i mean you can talk about there's so many things to talk about and it's basically this university system that, that they've changed is it working that's essentially what i'm asking there's so many different facets to it okay well done if you're a vice chancellor and you're earning this massive amount of money um so this is this is um professor christina slade and she got a whole package. When she left, that's what she'll get, worth £808,000 for the year. Let me break it down for you. Um, She got uh, £250,000 salary, basic. She was paid £429,000 for, quote, loss of office. Um, she represented value for money, said a spokeswoman for Bath Spa University. She served as a vice-chancellor until August. She was given a housing allowance of £20,000. Another £20,000 for, quote, other benefits in kind. Don't know what that means. There were also pension contributions of £89,000. She received a pay package including benefits and pensions worth £808,000 after she decided to lead the job, leave the job. Quote of the year so far i think comes from Lord Adonis who is pushing the issue of vice chancellor pay in the house of lords he said this if 800000 pounds represents value for money for a vice chancellor then i am the emperor of china it-
0: ian pay on lbc call 03456060973
1: Okay, now, uh, the, I mean, conflicting information coming from Brussels, but there, there seems to be sources close to the Prime Minister's suggestion that there might be even some sort of statement, either worded or a press conference in Brussels, with Theresa May and with Michel Barnier and David Davis, within the next hour, but obviously we'll be right across that. All I can tell you is it's a very early start. They are having a, quote, working breakfast. One of the... Um, Junior ministers at the, the EU has actually uh, tweeted a picture of white smoke, you know, when they um, vote for the, ne- for the next pope, saying obviously they've come to some sort of agreement. Whether they have or not, I presume they've been talking through the night. I understand officials have been talking, whereas the prime minister has had an early flight. I can confirm that the hugs were well, from David Davis to Michel Barnier. It was a double armed hug. Michel Barnier's was only one arm. That's all I can tell you. Uh, the photographs coming from Brussels already include uh, a very smiley pair, actually, of Theresa May and uh, from uh, also from Monsieur Barnier. Shaking hands and smiling, and it was quite funny, actually. There was watching one, you'll probably see it on the sort of rolling news services throughout the day. There was a photographer who got sort of held up from the press pack, and the press <laughs> officer just stands in the front of the cameras and says, come here, come here, hurry up, get out of the way. You don't want to mess with the press officer. So, okay, what, should we, what we can tell you. We'll, we'll, what, we'll kind of do a more of a rolling news, I think, on this, because this is happening right now at 22 minutes past six, 22 minutes past seven in the morning in Brussels, uh, Theresa May has arrived in Brussels following overnight talks on the issue of the Irish border. The situation is as follows, as I'm sure you know. There's a DUP said, "No, we don't agree with what you're doing. We don't like this idea of uh, uh, basically having a border in the sea, so we're no longer going to be part of, of of the United Kingdom." So they they said we're not having this when everyone else had agreed to it. The Republic of Ireland, Britain, and the EU DUP put a you know. Uh, put a bit of a fly in the ointment. So they've had to to hastily um, change the wording of how they're going to deal with it. Uh, Again, sources close to Downing Street are saying that the, they have actually come to some sort of agreement, it looks like, because they've got to get it done by Sunday. If they don't get it done by Sunday, they can't get it done by Thursday, by which time that's the last meeting before March of all the 27 countries, so it's got to be ratified by then, otherwise the trade, carts can't, trade talks can't start, and etc, 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 and the domino effect. So, you know, it looks like it's good news, but we will obviously try and confirm that as soon as we know it. So what do we know? We know that Theresa May has arrived in Brussels. David Davis is there as well. Uh, there have been over Overnight talks on the issue of the Irish border. The Prime Minister and also the Brexit Secretary, David Davis, are there. They're meeting the European Commission President, Jean Claude Juncker, also the EU negotiator, Michel Barnier. Um, So the understanding is that there were, quote, serious ideas on the table that the different parties were broadly content with. Additional wording is understood to have been added to reassure the DUP. It's all about compromise at this sort of level, but they've really had to kind of get a skid on here. The party's opposition on Monday, obviously, from the DUP led to the talks breaking down, so a briefing is expected following the meeting, however long that meeting might be. It might be a case of they've just look at the new wording and go, "Yep, we're happy with that. Presumably they've cleared it with the DUP already. Now, on Thursday evening, last night, the European Commission spokesman, uh, Margaritis Schinas tweeted this, we're making progress but not yet fully there. Adding tonight more than ever. Stay tuned. So, they the, the sort of juniors have been working on it, and now it's the, the, the sort of headmaster and the headmistress have gone in to ratify what their teachers have done. So very early this morning, the prime minister's chief of staff is Gavin Barwell. He tweeted this: "Home for three hours' sleep, then back to work." Without offering any further details, so they know they've got to get this done. All sides want uh, progress. On this issue because of the crucial summit next week. Talks can then move on to the future relationship between the UK and the EU after Brexit, i.e. what they call trade talks. Um, We're going to be talking about this in more detail with our political editor, Theo Usherwood, who will be joining me after the news in about five or six minutes time to give you on the lowdown on everything he's hearing from Brussels. So this is the kind of breaking news that the Prime Minister's arrived in Brussels. They are hopefully going to ratify the changes to the documents that were made last night. The background to this is, well, it's the Irish border situation. So there were were three things, weren't they, that they wanted to uh, sort out before they came to this, er before they can talk about trade. And the three things were the Irish border question, what happens when you change, you know, we're not in the European Union, Republic of Ireland is where's the border? How does it change? Is it a hard border? Do you have customs? You know what 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 goes on there? Nobody wants to go back to the hard border days of of the troubles. So it's a it's a different kind of case, and I think everyone is is, is pretty conciliatory on that behalf. So that was one of the things. The other was the the cost of the the Brexit divorce bill. It looks like we sorted that one out fifty mil- billion, isn't it, over forty years or something crazy. Uh, and the third one was EU citizens' rights and vice versa. Uh, that seems to have been sorted as well. So if we Get the Irish question out of the way. Today, we're on course to actually get this thing going. So, what's the story with uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland? Obviously, um, what happens there has been among one of the key sticking points in the Brexit negotiations. Uh, Previously on Brexit, (laughs) on Monday, the DUP, who obviously their support, the uh, Prime Minister, needs to win key votes in Westminster. That's what keeps her majority going. On Monday the DUP objected to the draft plans drawn up by the UK and the EU. They haven't been happy with a lot of what's been said um, and what has been, they felt, decided kind of behind their backs without their inclusion. So, for example, they included their objections uh, aligning regulations in Northern Ireland with those in the Republic so you could avoid having the border checks. The DUP says that they're not going to accept any agreement in which Northern Ireland was treated differently from the rest of the UK. They're feeling a bit left out. The Republic of Ireland, on the other hand, which, of course, is still an EU member, wants a guarantee that there will be no hard border between it and Northern Ireland after Brexit. That horrible hard border that we had before, even though we're part of the EU, because of the troubles, you know, it's difficult to go in and out um so this is the time scale we're due to leave the eu in march 2019 we w- want to kind of open talks on new free-, tr- free trade deal as soon as possible but as i say the eu will only agree to discuss this when it judges that enough progress has been made on the separation issues which I guess is the bill, um, expat citizens' rights, and the Northern Ireland border that have been the subject of negotiations so far. So watch this space. Theresa May is in uh, conference, I think we could say, with Monsieur Barnier and also uh, 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 with David Davis as well. And they are hopefully trying to ratify what has been decided overnight. If you've got an opinion on this, I'd love to hear from you. Oh three four five six zero six zero nine seven three is the number to ring oh three four five six oh six oh nine seven three um if you'd like to text you can do so eight four eight five oh or you can tweet at LBC. I mean, we still take calls on the university stuff, but I think this, this is kind of superseding it now, because these talks are taking place as we speak. And as I say, after the news, I was speaking to our political editor, Theo Usherwood, to get his take on the uh, whole thing. If you want to keep talking about universities, that's fine. Um, another damning report about English universities, hot on the heels of the revelations of how much the vice-chancellors earn in Bath, particularly. Bath University, vice-chancellor gets half a mil... Uh, the departing vice-chancellor of Bath Spa University gets 808000 as a goodbye gift, which isn't bad. Uh, so added to that, the National Audit Office, which is kind of like the, the the watchdog for public spending, says some universities are mis-selling or could be seen to be mis-selling degree courses to students. They want tighter controls. Uh, they say average loan leaves graduates with debts of up to £50,000. They say the courses don't give value for money and they say that uh, many students are taking out loans without any advice in a market that is basically unregulated, and they're being overcharged as well. Are you getting value for money for your degree? What do you make of the whole university programme, the way that it's been changed to be more inclusive, to allow more people from underprivileged backgrounds? Is that working? Do you think you're getting value for money? Have you gone to the right university? Have you done the right degree? Has going to university been everything you hoped? Has it given you a step up on the, the ladder, the career ladder? Or do you wish you hadn't done it and you'd done a more vocational thing and got some experience of that instead? 0345 And is there a direct correlation between the fact that universities are businesses now and making money out of student loans and the fact that these people who run the universities are being paid an absolute fortune? This is LBC. Ian Payne sitting in for Steve Allen today. He'll be back at the weekend. It's half past six on a.
0: Ian Payne on LBC. Call 0345
1: 6060973. So, what's happening in Brussels? We know there were first conversations apparently this morning after all-night talks between the uh, sort of deputies of the various committees. 4am that started. Theresa May got on an early flight with David Davis. Uh, They're meeting Michel Barnier. Let's have a word with Theo Ashwood, LBC's uh, political editor. What do we know?
17: DUP are saying they've got the changes they wanted. The deal is on, Oh, Ian. It is looking very much like we will have uh, a signed deal uh, before uh, 7 or 8 o'clock this morning. Uh, What has changed? Well, Theresa May has managed to square her proposals with the DUP's Arlene Foster. She, of course, leads the party and that uh, was the sticking point back on Monday when Theresa May had that working lunch with Mr Juncker uh, the President of the European Commission then had to dash out and take a phone call from Arlene Foster to say that she wasn't happy because, of course, what, uh, the, the proposal on Northern Ireland was, in effect, to separate off Uh, Northern Ireland from the rest of the United Kingdom so that it would more closely align with the European Union Mm -hmm. in terms of its rules and regulations, and that would deal with the Northern Northern Ireland border issue so that businesses could trade freely and easily uh, across that uh, 310-mile border. Theresa May has now been in negotiations with uh, the Irish Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, she took a call from him last night, and of course Miss Miss Foster as well, she spoke directly with Arlene Foster as well, and has come up with something that uh, she's happy with, Theresa May's happy with, that Arlene Foster is happy with, and of course, crucially, Mr Juncker, uh, she's hoping, will be happy with. Arlene Foster has has just come out and uh, told the television cameras that she backs the proposal.
9: Well, there have been changes right throughout the text, uh, and indeed we believe that there have been six substantive changes, um, and uh, we're pleased to see those changes, because uh, for me it means that there is no red line down the Irish Sea, and we have uh, the very clear confirmation that the entirety of the United Kingdom is leaving the European Union, leaving the single market, leaving the customs union, Uh, I think that's a very important statement to have, and it's also vitally important, of course, that the integrity of the United
17: the kingdom was kept in place. That was was, Foster
1: sorry there. about the music. That wasn't supposed to be there, but anyway.
17: <laughs> the key bit there from what Arlene Foster said would there be no border down the middle of the Irish Sea, and that's what the DUP were really fearing, because, of course, they want a close... So they were
1: effectively saying, we're worried that
17: the, you're turning the sea into a border. Exactly, and the whole you know, DUP is a unionist party. Mm. It wants to see, uh, every turn, Northern Ireland as close... Uh, to the United Kingdom, uh, to the rest of the United Kingdom, mainland Great Britain, as possible. It doesn't want, you know, Arlene Foster can't sell to her constituents as the leader of DUP somehow breaking away further and that you could have more stringent border checks between and customs checks between Northern Ireland when you fly to mainland Britain and when you cross the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And that was a huge uh, sticking point. That issue now seems to be sorted. Uh, Mr Juncker has sat down with his counterparts, Martin Selma, his chief of staff, and Michel Barnier, Uh, And I could just see some live television pictures coming out of uh, Brussels now of Mr. Davis hugging Mr. Juncker. They've sat down with a working breakfast, Theresa May, David Davis, the Brexit secretary, and, and of course, Olly Robbins, the the chief uh, Brexit uh, negotiator for the UK. Orange juice, brioche, buns, um, and uh, and there'll be a uh, statement as well. Très bon. And also, um, I see that I've seen live pictures,
1: as we often do before these things, of an empty press conference room where there's one or two disheveled journalists in there getting their laptops open and primed. Um, in fact, I'm looking at it right now. So they, they are having some kind of press conference later on, and you think that might be... It's, going to be, very,
17: it's going to be very, very shortly because, really? of course, this meeting has had to be squeezed into the early part of the day because most, both Mr Juncker and Donald Tusk, uh, who is, of course, the President of the European Council, have other engagements. If it can be believed, Mr Tusk has to be on an 8.30 Brussels time flight... Uh, to Hungary, where he's due to receive an honorary degree. So well, that I don't gives miss it, that. that's a, that's a bit of a put down uh, for uh, Theresa May that she has to play second fiddle to. Can't you just uh, do a conference degree? call? We're hearing what? Sorry, I'm just being given some. Inf- the
1: EU Commission says sufficient progress has been made. So I think, um, as you were suggesting, Theo, this is this is just uh, dotting I's and crossing t's, isn't it? The details have been hammered out through the night. And it looks like that as you say so was this did this catch everyone by surprise it caught me by surprise, I must say, that she was going to be there so early this morning.
17: It didn't catch us so much by surprise. We knew that, 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 some, that something was up last night because, of course, Theresa May has and, and the government, the British government, has always seen today as the deadline. Mm-hmm. Uh, the European Commission um, gave Mrs May a bit of wriggle room by extending that deadline to Sunday night because, of course, uh, they're saying that their, ca- their weekly calendar runs from Sunday to Sunday. Um, uh, the, the pretext to this is the context of this. Even is that um, tre- the, the, the European Commission, the other the other twenty seven EU countries, want to see the text of what has been agreed. They so they can scrutinise it, get their red marker pen out, cross through a couple of paragraphs, create but a bit of a hoo-ha.
1: Ha- what I don't understand is this day and age, this is very important, do, do they have to physically be together? That the, the EU seems to be saying they can only ratify things when they're all physically together and they have one of these scheduled meetings. Is, is there not some electronic way that they can actually agree to something
17: as a group, but without physically always being there? This is a huge deal. And I think, you know, from the European... Commission's point of view from the European, the entirety of the European Union's point of view and from the British government's point of view, there needs to be a sense of drama. There needs to be a sense of theatre. People need to come together. People need to have their opinions. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. In this modern age, you could probably do the whole thing over a conference. It's probably done by by officials as well, isn't it? Well, you have Sherpa. You have what they call Sherpas. Sherpas. I didn't know that. What's a a Sherpa? So each side has a Sherpa and they're the ones who go into a room and come up with a set of texts, and then they go back to their respective... And who are uh, these? Are these politicians they're, or civil no, no, no. servants? Civil servants, right. officials. And then they go back and they say, well, this is what so we've agreed. Yeah. And now um, we can see uh, Theresa May and Jean-Claude Juncker. I th- think, like they're... Uh, they're about to give a statement right now. I think they are about to give a statement.
7: Everybody can't? welcome to the Commission press room for this joint press conference by President Juncker and Prime Minister May. Without further ado, I give the floor to the President.
18: The Prime Minister, ladies and gentlemen... This morning, Prime Minister May and I had a meeting to take stock of progress since we met on Monday. I will not hide that in between Monday and this morning we had a lot of talks. The Prime Minister myself, the Taoiseach and myself, the Taoiseach and the Prime Minister. And um, that's the reason why I would like to thank the Prime Minister for her determination. I would also like to thank Michel Barnier and David Davis, as well as their teams, for the extremely hard and skilful work over the last weeks and months. We discussed the joint report agreed by the two negotiators. Prime Minister May has assured me that it has backing of the UK government. On that basis, I believe we have now made the work we need Today's result is, of course, a compromise. It is the result of a long and intense discussion between the Commission negotiations and those of the UK. As in any negotiation, both sides had to listen to each other, adjust their position, and show a willingness to compromise. This was a difficult negotiation for the European Union as well, as for the United Kingdom. On Wednesday, last Wednesday, the College of Commissioners gave me a mandate to conclude the negotiation of the joint report, and it had to be concluded today, not next week. Today, because next week we'll have the European Council, and in order to allow our partners to prepare in the best way possible the meeting of the European Council, we had to make the deal today. On the basis of the mandate which was given to me by the European Council, the Commission has just formally decided to recommend to the European Council that sufficient progress has now been made on the strict terms of the divorce. As für den genügend Fortschritte erzielt, damit wir jetzt in die zweite Phase der Verhandlungen eintreten können. Nous avons pu uh, it's, uh,
1: this is Jean-Claude Juncker, the President of the European Commission, speaking French and German, just to say that they have reached an agreement on this and the main parts of the deal.
17: Theo. The key, the key phrase in there, Ian, is sufficient progress. That was the phrase that was needed in order to bounce onto phase two of the talks, which is to talk about trade and the future relationship between the UK and the European Union. Without that recommendation that you heard there from. Uh, Jean Claude Juncker, the European Council. That's the member the 27 other EU members would be unable to bounce on to the, to ratify the decision to bounce on to the second phase. And of course, the time pressure that Theresa May was under uh, was intense. If she failed to get this uh, agreement at this c- coming council next uh, Thursday, Friday. And not to say there won't be drama when that council meets. It would have bounced on to February. And, uh, and many fear uh, within many hours the Prime Minister and, and those around, and those in the Conservative Party fear that that would have, wouldn't have been enough time uh, to secure a deal.
1: OK. Uh, I think we'll do, because while he's speaking in German and French, the uh, Prime Minister is primed to give her response and to talk to the assembled press. I think... Shall we just get the latest uh, news headlines and some travel? By the way, if you're going coming into London and you're on the A40, uh, stay away from it because there's a, been a bad accident. The whole of the inbound section coming into London has been um, shut. So uh, unfortunately, that has going to cause uh, repercussions all over the place. Right, uh, while we're waiting for the Prime Minister to speak, let's get the latest news headline.
0: Ian Payne on LBC.
1: Let's go back to Brussels live and hear from the European Commission President, Jean-Claude Juncker.
18: Uh, Last negotiations we had in the course of uh, yesterday with our Irish friends. The UK has made significant commitments on the avoidance of a hard border after its withdrawal from the European Union. All of the EU 27 stand firmly behind Ireland and behind the peace process. Let me clear, we still have a lot of work uh, to do. The joint report is not the withdrawal agreement. That agreement still needs to be drafted by the negotiators on the basis we have agreed yesterday and today, and then approved by the Council and ratified by the UK Parliament and the European uh, Parliament. 534 days ago the british people voted to leave the european union. two thousand and forty nine days ago the united kingdom notified its intention to leave the european union and in four hundred and seventy seven days the united kingdom will do just that. i will always be sad about this development but now we must start looking for the future a future in which the united kingdom will be and will remain a close friend and ally. The Prime Minister and I discussed the need for a transitional period and we dedicated much of our meeting to our joint vision as a deep and close uh, partnership. It is crucial for us all that we continue working closely together on issues such as trade, research, security and others. We will take things one step at a, at a time, starting with next week's European uh, Council, but today I'm hopeful that we are now all moving towards the second phase of these challenging negotiations, and we can do this jointly on the basis of trust, renewed trust, determination, and with the perspective of a renewed uh, friendship. Thank you,
19: Thank you. Well, thank you, Jean-Claude. We've been working extremely hard this week, and as you've all seen, it hasn't been easy for either side. When we met on Monday, we said a deal was within reach. What we have arrived at today represents a significant improvement, and I'm grateful to the negotiating teams, led by David Davis and Michel Barnier, for their efforts. Getting to this point has required give and take on both sides. I believe that the joint report uh, being published is in the best interests of the whole of the UK. I very much welcome the prospect of moving ahead to the next phase to talk about trade and security and to discuss the positive and ambitious future relationship that is in all of our interests. I've consistently said that we want to build a deep and special partnership with the EU as we implement the decision of the British people to leave at the end of March 2019. Doing so will provide clarity and certainty for businesses in the UK and the EU, and crucially for all our citizens. The deal we've struck will guarantee the rights of more than 3 million EU citizens living in the UK and of a million UK citizens living in the EU. EU citizens living in the UK will have their rights enshrined in UK law and enforced by British courts. They will be able to go on living their lives as before. I was clear in Florence that we are a country that honours our obligations. After some tough conversations, we have now agreed a settlement that is fair to the British taxpayer. It means that in future we will be able to invest more in our priorities at home, such as housing, schools and the NHS. In Northern Ireland, we will guarantee uh, there will be no hard border and we will uphold the Belfast Agreement. And in doing so, we will continue to preserve the constitutional and economic integrity of the United Kingdom. We have taken time this week to strengthen and clarify this part of the agreement, following discussions with unionists in Northern Ireland and across the UK. The Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, and I spoke yesterday, and we've both committed that there should be no barriers either north-south or east-west. I believe this agreement delivers that. To underline the importance of these principles, I'm writing today to the people of Northern Ireland to set out our approach. Millions of jobs depend on the future trading relationship we will determine. And I'm optimistic about the discussions ahead. But in the meantime, reaching this agreement now ensures that businesses will be able to make investment decisions based on an implementation period that offers welcome certainty. I will be seeing President Tusk shortly, and I look forward to the publication of his guidelines. I also look forward to next week's European Council meeting, where I hope and expect we will be able to get the endorsement of the 27 to what is a hard-won agreement in all our interests. Thank you.
12: We have time for some questions. Let me start with uh, Jurek.
18: Yakushkivish from the newspaper Le Soir here in Brussels. Prime Minister, this was a difficult negotiation like you just said, very challenging like the President said, Uh, but it's just the beginning, the first stage and it's just the beginning of a very long and complex negotiation Uh, and it was already very difficult. Did ever the uh, the question come to your mind that maybe after all uh, this whole Brexit affair is a very bad idea for any second? Thank you.
19: In, uh, in 2016, the British people were given uh, in a referendum the opportunity to choose whether to stay in the European Union or not. Parliament was united across all parties in Parliament, Uh, a significant majority agreed that that decision would be given to the British people. The British people voted and they voted to leave the European Union and I believe it's a matter of trust and integrity in politicians. I believe the people should be able to trust that their politicians will put into place what they have determined and and, uh, that's exactly what we're doing and we will be leaving the European
7: Union and I have uh, Adam from the
0: BBC hi Adam Fleming from the BBC morning to both of you Um, what is the biggest compromise the other side has made to get you to this point today and was it a champagne breakfast
19: This this was a question, actually, of coming together and working together for a report and agreements that were in the best interests of all sides. It's been finding uh, the way through that enables us to deliver for citizens, to deliver on the financial uh, settlement, and also, crucially, to deliver in relation to Northern Ireland that uh, agreement on no hard border, but also respecting the constitutional and economic integrity of the United Kingdom. That's what we've been working to. That's what I believe this joint report sets out.
7: And uh, Lorena from the German News Agency EPA.
19: Morning. Um, Mr. Prime, um, sorry, Ms. Prime Minister, um, the arrangement seems to mean a special status for Northern Ireland. How? come, your uh, partner, the DUP, accepted that? And uh, will it not mean that the rest of the UK will also remain in the single market? No, it uh, doesn't actually mean what you've suggested. We're very clear. If you look at the agreement, at the text of the joint report, it says that we will work to achieve the relationship, the trading relationship between the UK and the European Union. Uh, that we want to see, that we believe will also be the good trading relationship for Northern Ireland. If uh, that is not the case, then we will look for uh, specific solutions to what are the unique circumstances of Northern Ireland. Everybody recognises that because Northern Ireland is the only part of the UK with a land border, with a country that will be remaining within the European Union, that is a set of unique circumstances. And indeed, there are already uh, unique circumstances and specific solutions for Northern Ireland, uh, there's a single electricity market across the island of Ireland, for example. But I'm confident that we can, in negotiating the future trade relationship, we can ensure that we both know, won't have a hard border in Northern Ireland but that we will retain the economic integrity of the single market of the U- United Kingdom.
1: Mark, go ahead. Good, good morning um, to you both. Mark Stone from Sky News. Um, Prime Minister, could I ask you, um, in simple terms, what has changed between Monday's lunch uh, and now, which allows you to say a deal's done now and you couldn't on on, on Monday? And President Juncker, for you, if I may, um, specifically on uh, the European Court of Justice, it was one of the big sticking points. Uh, The Prime Minister says now that EU citizens in the UK will be under UK law and uh, UK courts. Is that correct? And are you happy with that?
19: I take it. On the uh, the first point, uh, as we both said when we stood here on Monday, there were a couple of issues that we still had to finalise as we uh, went through uh, the last few days. Um, But as I said in the remarks that I've just made, uh, we have one of the things you can see is a strengthening of the commitments in relation to Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom. I think that's important. I think that's helpful. So within the joint report, you will see the commitment both... To no hard border between Ireland and uh, the Northern Ireland, but also that we ensure that we retain that constitutional integrity and economic integrity of the United Kingdom.
18: For EU citizens, the European Court of Justice will still be competent. Michel Barnier will explain you later on in detail what this is about, because it could take too much time to explain this in detail. This concludes our press
6: conference. Thank you
18: Thank you.
13: That was the press conference. You're listening to Nick Ferrari. Uh, Ian has just left the office. You're listening to Nick Ferrari, who will be coming up with breakfast on this. The press conference, of course, historic that Mrs May went to Brussels for this crucial Brexit meeting. Details of the deal have to be said a little bit sketchy. Uh, Theo Ashwood, of course, has been with Ian uh, listening to that over the last 20 minutes or so. Theo, just before we give a full news update, what have we learned?
17: sufficient progress has been made. That means that uh, the negotiations can bounce onto phase two, those all-important trade talks. You heard there a last question about the European Court of Justice and its role over uh, the rights of EU citizens. Just see the detail on that, in fact. European Court of Justice is going to have jurisdiction for eight years. So there is a sunset clause, That is a victory for the Prime Minister, but many Tory leavers will get very hot under the collar on this one.
13: And is there a selling job she has to do back here, then, for for her own cabinet and, indeed, for her own party?
17: Absolutely. And it was interesting, late last night, the Chief Whip, Julian Smith, tweeted that he appreciated that colleagues within the Conservative Party might be unhappy and that they would. uh, he appreciated the concerns that they uh, had. And, of course, Theresa May now will have to come back to Britain and convince the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg, Owen Paterson, Ian Duncan-Smith, that she's actually got a good deal.
13: Theo Ashwood, LBC's political editor, will stay in the studio with me. Coming up, of course, full analysis and full news here on LBC.
0: This is LBC.